Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. We are here in episode 119, where we will be talking about chapters two and three of Gardens of the Moon by Stephen Erickson. Our next book club will cover chapters four and five of Gardens of the Moon, so mark that down. Our spoiler policy is that we will not discuss anything that happens after chapter three of this book while Liz has read the book. I have not, so I don't know what's going to happen after this section. So no spoilers, all of you out there in internet land. Okay, so I promise I'm not going to get too far into this, but I have been waiting all week to hear your reaction to one particular plot point. So real quick, Uh I just want your one word reaction to Hairlock the Puppet. That shit awesome. I just made it into one word. <laughs> I forced word. it into one word. I have a lot to say. Well, yeah, we don't need to get that. into I don't it anymore. Get, I don't want to get into it anymore. Right. I'm just going to say it was just crazy enough without going over the line. All right. For me. Yeah. Well, let's jump into chapter two. It's kind of a long summary, so <sighs> take a deep breath. We open on the fall of the free city of Pale. The sorceress Tattersail, still reeling from watching her entire cadre be destroyed, is approached by the tattered remains of the bridge burners. This once legendary military unit has been almost entirely dismantled by the Empress Lazine. The bridge burners have made a desperate alliance with the shifty sorcerer Hairlock, the last remaining member of Tattersail's cadre. The Bridgeburner's mage, Quick Ben, shifts Hairlock's soul from his dying body into a creepy-ass puppet and then gives it to Tattersail to look after. Now, Tattersail doesn't like Hairlock, and she's not sure if she trusts the Bridgeburners, especially since their new recruit, Sorry, is freaky as hell. Freaky-deaky. And despite this, Tattersail decides to help them in their maneuvering against the high mage, Tayshren, a man Tattersail suspects is responsible for destroying her cadre and her lover, Kello. Tattersail consults the deck of dragons and discovers that the god of chance, Opan, is influencing the game. Wizards and intrigue and puppets. Oh my. So let's talk about the Snapter before we jump into the plot here. As is protocol. As is protocol. So I'll just read it real quick. It's, it's not going to take long. <laughs> With the coming of the Moranth, the tide turned, and like ships in a harbor, the free cities were swept under imperial seas. The war entered its twelfth year, the year of the shattered moon and its sudden spawn of deathly rain and black-winged promise. Two cities remained to contest the Malazan onslaught. One stalwart, proud banners beneath Dark's powerful wing. The other divided, without an army, bereft of allies. The strong city fell first. So, obviously, the stalwart, proud-bannered city is pale. Where we are now. And kind of foreshadowing that the the second city is going to be Darugistan, mm-hmm. which is where our most of our characters are headed. So, yeah, so we know, obviously, at the, you know, at the end of this chapter, you know, 
not even the end, we know pretty much at the outset of this chapter what happens to Pale. We don't know anything about Darugistan, other than right. it's mentioned that that's where they're going next, and we have this snapter. This snapter leads me to believe that the bulk of this book, and really what this book is going to be about, is what happens in Darugistan, mm-hmm. not what happens in Pale. And the snapter also really kind of sets the scene for us and emphasizes the importance of the Moranth, who we get a mm-hmm. closer look at in these chapters. True. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the just the importance of their alliance and how that kind of changed the the shape of this war. And we see the Moranth, you know, in this chapter at least, being extremely brutal. So this chapter is it's divided into a couple of different scenes. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I divided my notes. Um, except I will say when <laughs> it was late when I was taking my notes, so I forgot the word for scene. So I, <laughs> I called them narrative tidbits. Like, I mean that, you know, that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's effective. So the first narrative tidbit that we have. <laughs> All right, we'll go with that. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about that structure. We talked about the idea that it's broken up in right. scenes. And what I like about that is it does, it, you know, by no means is it the only place it does it, but I love the way it takes this chapter, starts us off in kind of the middle of it. Mm-hmm. It seems to us like it's the end because it's mm-hmm. right after the battle, this big climactic right. thing, right? And then because it starts at the end of the battle and we know, you know, she's standing pretty much by herself and it's her and and a half dead hairlock, Mm -hmm. we know that pretty much everybody dies. So when we flash back and we kind of go to before the battle and we get introduced to all these characters, we know they're all dead. I know, yeah. And and it creates this brilliant tension. And then, of course, when we come back to them on the hilltop, there's still all this other stuff to unfold with Mm -hmm. hairlock. So I just really love the way it's sort of narratively broken down. But the beginning of the chapter, beginnings are always, beginnings and endings are, mm-hmm. you know, are always super important, right? So the first thing that I noted, the very opening sentence says, through the pallor of smoke, ravens wheeled. And just like we talked about last time, birds were this constant motif. Them birds. Them birds. That's right. right? And it starts off again talking about ravens. And of course, we have ravens again later. But, you know, we just keep seeing that being brought up again. It's, I don't know if it's quite like the moon in, you know, King Killer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's quite at that level yet. But it's this constant thing that we see mm-hmm. being brought up over and over again. And I don't know the entirety of what it means, but I'm sure we'll find out more. The other thing I noted that I thought was really important is. Tattersale says, The sorcery that had been unleashed here today had been enough to fray the fabric between the worlds. Whatever dwelt beyond in the warns of chaos fell close enough to reach out and touch. So we talked in the last section again about the concept of warrens, and we got mm-hmm. introduced to the concept of a warren as sort of this otherworldly place that kind of butts up against the real world mm-hmm. in some ways where Topper and Perron were using it sort of to traverse great distances. Right. But we didn't get a ton of information about it. We also saw Cotillion and Amanus emerge from one, although it mm-hmm. wasn't really spelled out that that's what it was at the time. Mm-hmm. But we don't know a lot about Warrens. We find out a lot more in these chapters. Yes. But I, but I do have a question about, you know, how literal to take that statement that, 
you know, the fabric between the worlds is sort of fraying. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that that causes me to believe is if there is a barrier, like a film between the worlds, we know obviously some people can cross in and out. But if there is this barrier between these two worlds, is there somebody who is deliberately trying to fray the fabric? Is somebody Mm. trying to break down the barriers? Or conversely, is there somebody trying to to sort of plug the holes for lack of a better, mm-hmm. is there somebody trying to staunch the flow of the dam? Mm-hmm. You know, is that part of what is sort of the greater mystery and conflict that's going on in mm-hmm. this, in this empire in the world? I don't know. Mm-hmm. These are just the things that are going through my head as I'm reading it. I like the way your brain works. So what was your first impression of Tattersail? So how many times do we get introduced to a main character and the main character is like, Ganos Peron, mm-hmm. 24 years old, six foot two, chiseled jaw. A 23-year-old underwear model, exactly, yeah. You're right. And so instead we meet Tattersail, who we find out later is over 200 years old. There I am. She's, she's described as being cherubic and, and round and fleshy and Rubenesque. And you have to kind of like it, or I do, Anytime we get introduced to a character who's going to be a main character and they're not one of these sort of archetypical, you know, we're going to go, we're going to go straight to Burbank, California and, and pick out anybody who's above any women above five, eight and any men above six foot one below the age of 30, you know? Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, it's, it's one of the things I liked right away about the Lightbringer series. Um, I, I, but I can't think of too many fantasy series where that is the case so for me Mm -hmm. reading this book the first time i was like you have my attention i'm listening (laughs) yes yeah even in name even even in uh the king killer chronicles that we that we love quoth is despite being redheaded he fits young and handsome i mean you know that's just that's just the way it is so that's just the way it is yeah it's not like when i read a book like that, it's a, it would be a criticism of that book. But Agreed. if an author does something different, I'm like, hello. You pay attention, yeah. That's hot. Yes, I completely agree with you there. That definitely perked up my attention the first time I was reading this book. So Tattersail is kind of standing there on this hilltop. She's been through this horrific battle. She's watching the Moranth, um, which is this army that didn't even participate in the battle. I know, dude, but, right? <laughs> but they, they've made a deal with the Empire that a part of their alliance is they get to sack this city. This is a, they're a longtime rival of the city of Pale. And so just by kind of lending their presence to the battle, they now get to go in and sack the city for an hour. It's a very kind of um, Roman, it just reminds me a lot of the Roman Empire yeah. and, and mm-hmm. the kinds of, things that they used to do i could be talking completely out of my ass i don't know if the romans ever actually did that but i don't know if it's it was... kind of an archetypical empire-ish thing to do <laughs> tattersail's not that. happy with it though no and you know so early on we find out that she's not necessarily drinking every flavor of the imperial kool-aid and and really when you think about it of all of the characters who's point of view we've been able to see i don't know that anybody is like a super patriotic well, malazan sort of even though we kind of head hop a little bit we don't really get 
too deep into anybody else's perspective and feelings, mm-hmm. really other than Piran and Tattersail. Mm-hmm. Now we get a little bit like of the captain and Itko Khan. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not like we never do. You know, we get a little bit with later with Whiskey Jack. Actually, now that I think about it, it's really only Lorne, uh, the Imperial adjunct, whose head we spend any time in, mm-hmm. but never learn anything about what she's feeling or mm-hmm. her past or her history. Her her perspective is almost like a camera lens. Yeah. It's only what's happening around her. You never hear her opinions or a lot of her inner thought. She might, she would give you opinions about what she sees going on around her, mm-hmm. but she's not reflecting back on any sort of greater insight into her who her character is. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I was initially thinking it's only Piran and Tattersail, but as I think about it, that's not really the case. Mm-hmm. And Lorne is also the only one who hasn't sort of had an internal dialogue of, oh my God, this is a mess. Mm-hmm. So we don't know if that's simply because we aren't hearing it or if because she's a robot. I don't think she's a robot, but she definitely keeps her thoughts and feelings locked down pretty hard. Yeah. So it's been a three-year-long siege. It's finally ended. Tattersail is standing there on this hill, and she looks to her left, and she sees the last remaining member of her entire, like, pretty much anyone who was standing on the hill mm-hmm. is the wizard Hairlock. Tattersail and Hairlock don't like each other very much. She's not particularly sad to see him disemboweled, let's just yeah. say. You definitely get the gallows humor sense of, uh, you get the soldier's sense of sort of black humor you know, in this chapter, you you get a fair amount of that for sure. Oh, absolutely. I think it's fair to say everybody we've encountered in this book so far has PTSD. Well, I mean, you don't want to get me down that rabbit hole. No. <laughs> I mean, no, nobody actually has exhibited any symptoms of PTSD, but they've certainly all been through extreme trauma. We definitely can agree on that. I'm yes, I'm I'm not trying to get in into a diagnostic conversation they've been through some shit (laughs) yes yes they have and hairlock in particular his bowels are being held in by like a web of magic and so they have a conversation uh about what's going to happen to him next and uh hairlock informs tattersail that that he's got a, a back door hairlock you ain't got no back door you got a screened-in porch. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Not anymore, buddy. <laughs> so Hairlock is kind of a dick, I think it's fair to say. Uh, I don't know that I would agree with that, actually. Uh, what? He's a little bit of a dick. Yeah, no, no, you're right. No, you're, no, you're right. I, the more I think about it. Um, and he's not a, a big fan of Tattersail, but he really, really hates the head mage Tayshren. Yeah. Who we've yet to meet. But they're talking about how much he hates Tayshren. And um, Hairlock is trying to get Tattersail to realize something mm-hmm. as his, his back door is approaching. Um, and I love the way the tension is built here. You know, it starts with Tattersail standing there. The battle is over, but she feels like something even worse is coming. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. feeling grows and grows as she's talking to Harlock and he's talking about how his his door, his back door is coming to him. And she turns around and there's 
sorry. With this sense of evil just (laughs) emanating, as is the case with all 15-year-old girls. (laughs) Just a spirit of evilness descending. Rolling off of her in black waves, angst and... But especially sorry. Especially sorry, right. So sorry is in the company of the bridge burners, Whiskey Jack, Quick Ben, the Mage, and Callum. So there's one other there's one thing that happens slightly before that. There as Hairlock and Tattersail are talking, Hairlock once again warns her and he says, you know, as they're she's trying he's trying to get her, as you said, to to recognize something that occurred. But then he says to her, there's always a risk of knowing too much. Mm. And again, this theme of information as being something that's dangerous mm-hmm. arises. This is now like the third time it's come up in, you know, in not even as many chapters. Mm-hmm. But then we, you know, then we meet everybody. And the the first thing that I note, well, the first thing that happens is that Tattersail goes fan fanboy over Whiskey Jack. Fangirls, right. Okay, she fangirls over <laughs> you're, you're, the, the, the Whiskey Jack? The Whiskey Jack. So that's the first thing that happens. But then she recognizes Quick Ben as a mage mm-hmm. and pretty immediately recognizes that he is more powerful than she is. Right. Because there's this interesting concept that they can f- like feel the power emanate off of other mm-hmm. mages. Well, and that there aren't that many mages around, so pretty much they all know each other. Yeah, yeah, and she doesn't know who this guy is. Right. So that's so that's another uh, factor there. So she's sort of astonished that there's this mage more powerful more powerful than she is. She doesn't even know who it is. Mm-hmm. But what I noted is that even as powerful as she is, even as powerful as he is, he is terrified of sorry. Yes, indeed. And in fact, a little bit later, he says something to the extent of, I never really believed in evil <laughs> until I met sorry. Right. Which just goes to show. And he's seen some evil. He's seen some evil. I mean, it's it's fascinating because we have seen sorry do nothing. 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 And it it's that horror movie sort of framing of Mm -hmm. the thing you don't see Mm -hmm. allows your imagination to just sort of grow and build it. The only thing we know about Sari is the way other people who appear to be powerful perceive her. That's it. Yeah. That's the only thing we know about her. That's a really good point. And this book does have a really kind of horror flavor to it. It does. You've got like, you've got hellhounds. You've the got damn birds everywhere. The birds everywhere. Men killed by pigeons. You, I mean, it definitely hits a lot of those notes. Tattersail and Whiskey Jack talk about, they just kind of talk about the battle. They talk about how many people they've lost. Whiskey Jack can look around and see all this empty armor. Mm-hmm. And I love there's this glorious little bit of prose in the beginning of this chapter where Tattersail is talking about the silence coming from the armor sounding like yeah. a dirge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it just gives me chills. Well, and of course, it, I mean, we know now why the armor is empty. But but right. when you first encounter that image, it's like, why why is she standing in a field of empty? Mm-hmm. Armor? Now you know people died. Like there's right. no question about right. that. It's just it's just later you get the details. Right. The, the terrifying and disgusting details. Oh my gosh, every detail. 
So the bridge burners had been during the battle and really during this entire siege, they had been assigned to try and dig under the city's walls. And I, and I wrote this down about it. It said, that order had come straight from the capital and it was either a cruel joke or the product of appalling ignorance. The whole valley was a glacial dump, a rock pile plugging a crevice that reached so far underground, even Tattersail's mages had trouble finding its bottom. They'd been underground three years running. When was the last time they saw the sun? Damn. What I think is the most telling about that is we had sort of a hint at the beginning of the prologue that Lacine was attempting to root out magic and mages. Right. Or at least unsanctioned magic. Yes. Right. And we're obviously at the beginning of this section, but a big theme and a big puzzle that runs through both of these chapters, particularly chapter two, is who killed Callow, who killed A. Coronas, who killed all these people, right? You know, there's a speculation that it's that it's Tayshran or that it's somebody, mm-hmm. you know, from the Empire that's doing it deliberately. And then we also had some speculation that Lysine is trying to do the same thing to the bridge burners. Mm-hmm. This is just another, you know, sent on a fool's errand that's pretty much guaranteed to fail. Mm-hmm. And we find out later, people are constantly writing reports back to the Empire saying... <laughs> this is this is foolish. This is not going to do anything. It's you know it's not productive, mm-hmm. and they're completely ignored. So there's this whole constant question throughout both of these chapters of what the hell is the empire trying to do? Like, mm-hmm. is, are they trying to erase everybody? In the you know whoever had power before Lacine came around, mm-hmm. that's what it seems like is going on. Well, that's certainly what's implied here, especially Correct. since uh, we find out that the second army, who which they are all part of, is the last intact army that is the same as it was under the emperor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all of these kind of old guard, and then we'll, we'll get more into like which of the high mages were there and, and stuff like that. But the fact that Herlock points out to Tattersail that the attack um, that wiped out her cadre didn't come from the enemy; it came from the plane yeah. where her allies were. Yeah, and we'll and we'll we'll get read, more into that more later that. too. But um, we do find out Sorry has an interaction with Tattersail, mm-hmm. and um, she tells her that. Out of 1,400 bridge burners, 35 lived. And that Tayshiren, the high mage, forbade a rescue attempt. So certainly seems like someone higher up has it out for them. Yeah. And that Sari almost seemed to be fishing to see if Tattersail knew about this yeah. or maybe was looking to see if she was complicit in it. Yeah. Um, and she doesn't find what she was looking for, obviously. But it wigs Tattersail out. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for some reason... Anytime a character is described as being having old eyes. Yeah, yeah. Like I just picture a young person with like really bad crow's feet. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what she has going on here. Sorry, is like a young girl with old eyes. Wicked I can't crow's picture feet. what that actually is supposed to look like. Well, I think it, you know, like just a little bit on the roomy side. Maybe. 
you know. Uh, the whites of the eyes are a little more yellow. Maybe than... like always has mascara gunk in the middle. Like, <laughs> I don't know what that means. One other thing at the very end of this scene mm-hmm. where Tattersail says, like, up to the empty sky where Moonspawn had been. We right. At this point, we don't know this. Right. So this is something you have to piece together sort of in reverse, but that's also mm-hmm. why I want to kind of spell it out. So she speaks up and she says, you warned us, she whispered to the empty sky. As the memories of the morning returned, you warned us, didn't you? And I'm assuming at this point that she's talking about Moonspawn, which had mm-hmm. been in the sky. And the warning itself is the poem that gets read Mm. uh, later where it says, he lives asleep, so give silent warning to all, wake him not, wake him not. Mm. The warning being, don't you tug on Superman's cape. (laughs) That's right. Don't you spit into the wind. (laughs) And you better not wake up Anamanda Rake, he needs his beauty sleep. (laughs) Don't make him come out out there (laughs) right (laughs) don't make me come down there you guys make me take off my shoe going to get the death ravens (laughs) (laughs) so the second scene in this chapter is a flashback to the morning before the battle Mm -hmm. where tattersail wakes up to a magical summons she's asleep next to her boyfriend callow is that what we're going to call him? Yeah, we're calling him. He's like Merlo. That's what I'm thinking. But bonier. Yes. Because Merlo was a full bot. Yeah. <laughs> so I love Tattersail and Kello. They're adorable. Even the little, just the little bit of time we get to see them together. Totes adorbs. This, this is the closest thing to nice you're going to get in this novel. <laughs> like The closest thing to like a nice fun oh aren't they adorable they're so cute they could live happily ever after if only they didn't live in hell on earth something that i really like about this book though is the the contrast between like this grim dark world stuff that's going on but then when you do have a scene uh, that's portraying intimacy and joy it just makes it shine that much brighter Mm -hmm. so yes Two thumbs up for Tatterlow. <laughs> it's better than Cal Sale, so yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. So they get a magical summons from Hairlock. They head off that way, and right away, um, it, there's a, a tension kind of building. Tattersail yeah. right mm-hmm. away knows something is up, and there's kind of this for, sense of foreboding that's growing. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I noted is. At this point, we don't really understand sort of the rank, the rankings. Right. But Tattersail feels compelled to respond to this summons, even though we find out later that Hairlock is technically one of her subordinates. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's definitely intimidated by him. Mm-hmm. And he definitely seems more powerful than she does. Mm-hmm. So it's not as though the pecking order and the ranks, at least in the in the mage cadres, are based on raw magical ability. Or even length of time with the Empire, because we find out that Hairlock has actually been with the Empire much longer than Tattersail. Mm-hmm. Um, so she and Kello get ready, and they're getting ready to go. And the way that this narrative is structured, 
we already know that they're all going to die. And it, Stephen Erickson even kind of puts it out there. Um, he says, he's talking about them getting dressed. And he says, less than an hour later, Kello would be incinerated beneath a wave of blue fire and Ravens would be answering Tattersale's despairing scream. Damn. Right? Yeah. It's dark. So then she steps out and they both turn around and look at Moonspawn. Moonspawn. So, to this point in this novel, we have definitely seen some magical things, some pretty crazy, wacky magical things. Mm-hmm. Most particularly, you know, what happens at the beginning of the first chapter with the the shadow hounds, the right. hell hounds, uh, Amanus and Cotillion who come mm-hmm. out of nowhere, Riga possessing the girl. So it's not as though this has been like a low magic setting, right. not by any stretch, but... The entrance of Moon Spawn is like the harbinger of of just this whole world of batshit crazy magic. Right. So the first, this is the first sort of hint that this world is not like our own. <laughs> it's, it kicks it up a notch, doesn't it? it? it, it the hits just keep on coming. <laughs> so we start with Moon Spawn which is a floating mountain fortress suspended uh-huh. over the city of Pale. Uh-huh. Right? Filled with people from the t D. We find out they don't have any allegiance to Pale that we know of, and we don't really get a lot of explanation for why they've been partnered with Pale, right? Mm-hmm. But we just sort of get the beginning of it. But from here, like, this is the thing that breaks the seal. And the... The rest of the chapter, here are all of the batshit crazy things that happen <laughs> in a list. Okay. Oh, lay it on me. When you lay it out this way, you, you recognize just how insane this chapter is. The The next thing we get introduced to is the Telon and Mass. I don't know if that's how you say it, but the Empress's undead army, uh-huh. which they just casually throw about. <laughs> Then we get Anamander Rake, who we you know we find out about here, who who is somehow subservient or a part of Mother Dark. Mm-hmm. That's not ominous at all. <laughs> we learn about Elder Magic, the Corald Galane, the concept of being able to smell another mage's powerful uh, power, a Bargast, what no explanation of what it is, mm-hmm. a Telemann Giant. Again, other than being big, we don't know. A Coronis, uh, who carries a flaming staff. <laughs> a Coronis. Great ravens, which I did the math, would be almost seven feet tall. Oh my gosh. Blue fireballs from Tashrin. Waves of rotting necrosis from Anamander Rake. Uh, the fireballs that kill Kalo, the wave that cuts Hairlock in half, globes of protection around Tattersail and Kalo, the Kenrila demon that pops out of the ground for no goddamn reason <laughs> and kills Nightchill, the ethereal wings of ice that killed a Coronis, magical tarot cards, and we wrap it all up with a soul-possessed marionette. <laughs> this chapter is batshit crazy. <laughs> yes so this is where i said earlier i had some things to say about this and you know the the puppet is the icing on a, f- a crazy ass cake that is just pure <laughs> fucking icing it's amazing <laughs> right so this I, is the burger cookie of <laughs> yeah right 
fantasy chapters. It's it's taking a burger cookie, chopping it up into small pieces, <laughs> and then using it to make a cake that you, <laughs> that you ice with other burger. Co- it's just I can understand how for some people this could go too far. Right. The the layers of magic just thrown down mm-hmm. so quickly. For me, it is just the right flavor mm-hmm. of insane. Yeah. I love it, but I can fully understand how somebody else might not feel that way. Yeah. All of that is just in this chapter. Just That's in this just chapter. just in this chapter. All of those, by the way, entirely new concepts, not introduced prior to this chapter. That's right. <laughs> That's right. It's not giving you time to like get. This is not Stormlight uh, Archive where we eke things out yeah, to yeah, you yeah. a little bit at a time. And no explain chart it to in you. the back. You know? No. No. Catch the fuck up. Right. <laughs> right. He seemed to say. <laughs> Tattersail and Kolo walk over to Tayshren's tent, and outside of the tent is a soldier standing on guard. And Tattersail has a, a friendly little interaction with him. But I thought it was worthy to note the interactions between the different ranks of soldiers in this army. The way that they're kind of estranged, but depend on each other completely. And so they have this little saying that they say to each other, always an even trade. Mm-hmm. Like we might not have anything in common or really have anything to do with each other most days. But when it comes down to it, you're going to save my life. I'm going to save your life. So the guard kind of gives her a warning mm-hmm. yeah. that that Tayshren is here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody likes him. Well, he's an he's kind of an outsider to them. You know, that's a pretty common thing amongst you know a mil, a, amongst military cultures. You know, right? Is this idea that that you know it's it's called a core. You know, mm-hmm. the corpus or group is called a core for a reason. It's the idea of everybody is a part of a body, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and although the head might be telling the fingers what to do, without the fingers, you're going to drop the glass, right? Right. You know, everybody understands that there's no part that's extraneous. Everybody needs everybody else, and there's a certain amount of mutual respect and a certain amount of disdain for everything that is outside of that unit. Mm. And it starts, you know, kind of at the, even at the lowest levels, but, mm-hmm. but like the further you get away uh, from like the unit that somebody's in, the less sort of respect people tend to have for each other. Mm. You can, um, so for instance, you know, if you're the uh, company commander in the United States Army, you know, your company means everything to you. The battalion right above you is also very important, but you start to think about like the leadership of the next battalion over, Mm -hmm. you don't care as much about them. Mm -hmm. You recognize and respect them, but you don't care as much about them, Mm -hmm. you know, and somebody from another division is kind of a little bit more of an outsider, but they're not nearly as much of an outsider as somebody on the Marine Corps base 40 miles down the road, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, so that dynamic is, is. So would you say that was well-written as far as like the military interactions? I think it was absolutely. And I think it's a, an eloquent way of explaining what I just took, uh, you know, 200 words to say. So So when they enter the command tent, they're bowled over by Tayshren's stink. And as you mentioned, uh, we, we learn here that sorcerers can kind of sense each other's magic and that Tayshren's magic is anathema 
to Tattersales magic. Mm-hmm. So Tattersales Warren, that the the source of her power is the Warren of Light. Mm. If you, the, you I didn't have, know that you yeah, have yeah. to go into the back of the book to find that out. I'm, I'm not just explaining to, go to you. The back of the book. I will tell you the important things from the back of the okay. book. Hers is the Warren of Thier, correct? Yes. The okay. Thier Warren, which is the Warren of Light. Yeah. Okay. So I love this scene. They walk in and Tayshren is posed dramatically over the map table. Like just kind of like standing there with a studied pose. They're like, he's standing like that on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Hairlock is is disguised in the corner. It's just a hot mess, basically. I I loved Hairlock appearing like the Cheshire cat. Yes. Like yeah. teeth first, grin mm-hmm. first, and then the rest of his body appears. But I did think it was interesting that the stench of Tatian's power is so strong mm-hmm. that they didn't even notice that Hairlock was sitting there invisible. Right. Yes. Yes. They immediately, Kello's eyes are watering. Tattersail's got a migraine headache. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just shows you how powerful Tayshren is. Yeah. So they come in and they have this meeting and then Dujek One-Arm appears. And right away, we we are given the strong impression that Dujek is a good guy. Yeah, capital yeah. G, capital G. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and we've heard Dujek's name before and it was yes. brought up in the last episode uh, that Dujek was somebody who was one of Whiskey Jack's subordinates. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it was nine years ago when we right. when we started with the prologue. So that's to this point the only thing we know about him. But it it helps to kind of set some of the back the backstory. And what we learn through the rest of this chapter is that and and continuing in chapter three, Dujek commands an immense amount of respect and loyalty from the Second Army. And from Tattersail as well, she says that she associates his smell with security and safety and sanity. sanity. Mm-hmm. He's kind of the the pin around which this entire operation is hinged. So Hairlock gives his report. He was sent to talk with the bridge burners and figure out how close they are to tunneling under the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, yeah, it'll take them seven years at least yeah, they're to tunnel close, under yeah, the yeah. city. They're not going to do it. Of course, that's not really the point of them being down there. It, well, it's also not the point of it coming up in this chapter. It's just to sort of help you understand that what happens with Hairlock later is not out of the blue. Yes, yes. So, and there's a neat little interaction where Dujak tells them that um, the Empress has sent a claw to hunt down the mages in Pale. She sent a claw. The claw. Listen, I can't hear... The Claw. I can't. <laughs> without remembering Carrie Yule's in in the movie Liar Liar. Yeah. Where, you know, he's like, ooh, it's the Claw. <laughs> the Claw's going to get you. It's going to get you. <laughs> like, I, every time I hear The Claw, I just picture Carrie Yule's with his crooked little finger going, <laughs> they're going to get you. <laughs> what you're building up to. Yes. Is what I in my notes, refer to as the drama in the tent. Yes. There is this some drama. huge blow up between Hairlock and Tashrin that even Tattersail and Kolo don't understand what the fuck is going on. Right. So this is like 
11 p.m., 4th of July, your family's all cleaned up and people are getting ready to go home, and all of a sudden your grandmother and your great aunt (laughs) start fighting about something that happened during prom (laughs) class of 1953, right? (laughs) Right. And she's like, you were flirting with the captain of the football team. And the other one's like, you don't even know his name. And she's like, his name was Johnny, Johnny Pemberton. And you're like, hey, what happened with Johnny? And they both look at you simultaneously and say, he died in Korea. And then go back to hating each other. Right? And like, Very true. I'm watching this whole thing and I have no idea who did or didn't give Johnny Pemberton seven minutes in heaven. (laughs) Well, he's a high schooler, so let's five minutes in heaven, (laughs) three minutes in heaven. But (laughs) there's so much depth and back Uh story to this, you can't follow it, right? But Harlock is convinced that the leader of Moonspawn is Anamanda Rake. Yes. And Tayshren is hiding this fact for some reason. Mm-hmm. But we don't know why he thinks that or why it would benefit Tayshrin to hide that fact. Or at least I don't. Yes, and Herlock hints that he knows a lot of things. He yeah. hints that um, the fact that they are going up against Anamander Rake with only three high mages is crazy and is being done on purpose. And then he even insinuates that he knows which three mages are getting picked. Yeah, yeah. And listen, I don't think Grandma went down on Johnny Pemberton, <laughs> but I don't know. It definitely seems like she might have. She, but she might have. Like, uh, you know, so so we, we, we know that, like, there's all this tension and he's like, oh, this is going to happen. But, like, but we just don't know enough to really piece together the truth of it. But the other thing I noted is Herlock is capable, it appears, of placing suggestions into other people's minds. Hmm. So they're trying to wrap this thing up. Tayshren and and Dujek are saying, you know, they're asking why 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 now? Why now? Right? Right. And and Dujek and Tayshren are like, because the other armies are away. This is the only time we can do this without risking having another army mm-hmm. outflank us. Right. Which, by the way, makes perfect tactical sense yes. to me. So it all makes sense from that perspective. And then eventually Tatrin's like, you know what? You don't fucking get to ask why. We're goddamn doing it. Right. Right? And so they're trying to pack up. And then at that point, Hairlock, it says, I'll read it to you. Uh, Hairlock remains seated, eyes closed as if asleep. And then blah, 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 they continue to fight. And then it says... Dujek surveyed his cadre and was about to add something, but Kolo spoke first. Anamandarus. Mm-hmm. Herlock's eyes snapped open, found Tayshrin with bright pleasure. Ah, he said. It very much gives me the impression that, like, Herlock was trying to send mm. the images to Tattersail and Kolo so that they would recall this poem. Mm. Because as soon as Kolo mentions the first line, Tattersail is like, that's right. Um, and, you know, he closes his eyes, doesn't say anything, and he has been nothing if not fucking vocal mm-hmm. throughout this entire... It's the only time where he shuts his mouth. He shuts his eyes. And then as, 
And then as soon as he says something, Hairlock, Kello, that is, says something. Hairlock is like, aha, it worked. Mm-hmm. So that's the impression I get. That's a very interesting thought. I like it. And I love here the introdu- the introduction to Anamander Rake, the Lord of the T-Standee, who are the souls of Starless Night, the main of chaos... I mean, so so when they realize that this, they they knew they've known that there was some sort of higher person, kind of up there running things, but they didn't know who. When they find out who it is, they all just shit themselves. Yeah, ex- except that besides the the badass nicknames, we don't know who it is, right? So this is their way of trying to say to us, "Holy, this is shit. a badass." Yeah. It's, Mofo, Hulk, it's right Hulk Hogan here. up in there. It is Hulk Hogan. Oh, God. <sighs> Did you just ruin Anamander Rake for me? I think you <laughs> no. might have, you bastard. No, no. Hey, kids. <laughs> With the some great ravens up here. of America. <laughs> I hate you right now. <laughs> the Wizards of Dark are going to win now. <laughs> Oh, God. You gonna say your <laughs> prayers? You gonna listen to Mother Dark? <laughs> you did. You ruined Anamander Rake, you <laughs> bastard. <laughs> That's all I can picture. But it's a great introduction to this character Absolutely. who is, you know, kind of supposed to be the badass of all badass mages. We also learn here that Hairlock as we said before, has been with the Empire since the Seven Cities fell. And they talk a lot about the Seven Cities. Um, that is where Callum and Quick Ben are from. And we'll talk about that more later. But one thing that really strikes me here is this idea that the every Empire is kind of inherently pulling apart at the seams. Tattersail is, is thinking about how people from the Seven Cities seem to really chafe still at being under Imperial rule. And she calls them the closeted ghosts of the conquered but unconquerable. Mm, yeah. And so I just think that's that's an, speaks to this theme of imperialism and how um, the only way that empires can really survive is just to keep expanding, expanding, expanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a really common thing that we know sort of happened in history as well, is that you would conquer one nation— you know, if you're the Romans, you conquer one Germanic tribe, and then you, rather than allowing them to just send their soldiers back to farm their land, you take those fighting men and you put them somewhere else to fight against some other enemy, mm-hmm. you know, to keep them engaged and to give them another enemy, mm-hmm. somebody else who's killing them other than you. So within an hour of this meet, what I like about this is he's like, He's not like, we're going to attack tomorrow or, you know, it's like, we're attacking within the hour. Get your shit. Let's go. Right from here, they're basically sent straight to the battlefield. So we just now have an intense bloody Insanity. Absolutely. All those things that I read in the list. Yes. 90% of them happen in about four pages. Yes. Like... (laughs) So they're fighting with three other high mages. We have Night Chill. Um... Her boyfriend, Belurden, who is a Thelemon giant. The Thelemon giant, Belurden. And a Coronas. 
I mean, how can you? How can you not? How can you not do that? All I I'm, can hear. I have to say, for the sake of the podcast, I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> I know. Yes, because. <laughs> Because that could get old. It really could get old. A Coronas. Yes. It's not old yet. (laughs) Yeah, he's a fire wielder. And and again, um, chubby. Yeah, that's right. I like it. I like it. A Coronas, more than any of them, seems straight out of like a 1987 video game though right absolutely D &D character yeah right with like the fire staff fire staff like you can see him wearing red robes he's got a hairy chest sticking out absolutely you know he's as tall as he is wide yep totally so i love the scene where they're all standing there the tension is building and hairlock he knows something so he's kind of being smug he's like i know what's gonna happen anyway they're all the tension is building and then the the fortress, which has been slowly revolving this whole time, just stops. Yeah. And um, they had all been placing bets that that Anamander Rake wouldn't want a direct confrontation, and this door opens, and out he comes. <laughs> <laughs> and he rips off his his uh, tank top, and... <laughs> and you just know the shit's going down. He takes his blender, it's got 18 raw eggs in it, <laughs> he and he just chugs, chugs it down. Chugs them down. Going down, brother. <laughs> so then the 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 place just explodes with these great ravens, which, as you pointed out, I did the math: six foot, math. eight inches tall. Oh my gosh, that's crazy! Anamander Rake, the Lord of the Black Skin Tistandi, who has looked down on one hundred thousand winters, who has tasted the blood of dragons, who leads the last of his kind, seated in the throne of sorrow and a kingdom tragic and fey, a kingdom with no land to call its own. Do you remember the movie Snatch? Yes. There was the character in there. I hope I hope it's the right movie. There character in there, Bricktop. Mm-hmm. Ugly old dude, huge mm-hmm. glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes on this badass speech, of, you know, when he's like, he walks into a room with these two guys and then he's like, do you know who I am? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and after, you know, his whole thing, he says, the point is never trust a man who keeps live pigs, you know? <laughs> and in here, there is the statement how insane uh-huh. is Anamander Rake th- that he can keep fed 10,000... 30,000. 30,000 <laughs> seven-foot-tall ravens. <laughs> Who's got that kind of meat? <laughs> yeah. That's like a 1,000 brick tops. Uh-huh. Okay. Yep. The ravens are badass. The ravens are badass and his magic is in the form of a black writhing necros wave hence all the empty armor hence all the empty armor so we find that of the warrens um there are some that are more powerful than others closer to chaos mm-hmm. and he uses the kurad gulain sorcery the kurad gulain elder magic it's elder magic the breath of chaos you know so, you know. So he comes out, he unleashes his black necros sorcery, and all hell just breaks loose. It's it's a lot of, and I, I will say that this is generally 
my least favorite thing about fantasy novels is when the mages stand off and just start throwing fireballs at each other. Right. Right. We get a a fair amount of that in like the wheel of time, Mm -hmm. you know, where it's like, okay, you know, like that. But Erickson does a great job of putting so many other things into it. One, badass things like a demon that pops up out of the ground and the great ravens on but also the fact that there is all this subterfuge and all this other plot and all this you know who struck john literally who struck Mm -hmm. airlock you know from the plane there's all this other stuff going Mm -hmm. on so it's not as though you know the fireball after fireball is the culmination of of the event right um well, and we also have like this heartbreaking, tender scene where Kello gives his life to protect Tattersdale. He stands there and puts all of his his power into boosting her shields, basically. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there are like these human moments as well. Yeah, for sure. That can often be the stuff that's not very interesting to me, except for these other elements that are that are layered in there. Well, and also the fact that we already know how this battle ends. And we know how it ends, yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. W- one other note I had bef- right before the, uh, you know, all the fireballs start flying is Tattersail mentions that she's supposed to have a cadre of six mages. Mm-hmm. So there's supposed to be seven mages, I guess, at the army level. Mm-hmm. Each army is supposed to have seven, or each cadre is supposed to have seven. Mm-hmm. But she only has two. So instead of seven, right. there's three of them. Right. And it plays into that question of what is Lacine doing with magic? Mm-hmm. Do they only have three mages because she's just not replacing them and mm-hmm. allowing attrition to kill off the army? Right. Or is it because the gift of magic is becoming less common mm-hmm. or because it's persecuted? Like, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But there's something behind that. There's a mm-hmm. reason why there's not seven of them there. Right. And I think it's important. We just don't know what the answer to the question is yet. Right. But the thing that that I think you also have to ask when you're going down that road is if Lacine is trying to just kill off mages and get rid of all the powerful mages, then why would Tayshren go along with that? Mm-hmm. Because if the idea is that she's just trying to eliminate threats to her mm-hmm. and and not have anybody uber powerful, well, Tayshren is uber powerful, mm-hmm. and he's obviously no dummy. So if this is a purge, then he would have to be thinking, my number is going to get called two. Right. So why would he go along with that? It almost seems too simple, and it that's something that simple. gets brought yeah. up in the next chapter. By Valerdin, and obviously we are only in chapter two of a, a very large book. So you're right; it's it it does seem like there's got to be something more to it. But at this point, w- what's very obviously in front of us is oh, it looks like Tayshren acting on the Empress's orders is cleaning house. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's what we're. I mean, that's what Harlock is trying to right lead us Insinuate, to believe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's talk about kind of what happens then on the battlefield, right? Right. Let's, let's talk about Kalo being killed and Harlock being cut in half, right? Well, and before we talk about that, just quickly mention that the three mages that are there are all ones that were favorites of the emperor and have not seen action since Lazine took power. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, that's... They've been called up out of being kind of shoved off to the side all of a sudden. They were put in desk jobs. Yes. And now they're being sent back out. Yeah. You know... To fight Animander Rake. Yeah. 
so yeah, so we have uh, Night Chill who gets killed, uh, A Coronas who gets killed. So Tayshren, Belurden, and Tattersail are the only ones who survive. But Tayshren has like a blue fireball that, you know, is the first sort of thing that happens. He's standing basically at the front line, mm-hmm. damn near under Moon Spawn. Mm-hmm. But then from the planes beside them, so not coming from the direction that Tayshren and Moon Spawn are occupying, but somewhere from the side of them, these blue fireballs come mm-hmm. and kill Kolo and and Hairlock. Mm-hmm. So it obviously wasn't Tayshren himself doing it because he would not have been in the right place to have sent the fireballs. I'm not sure about that. I feel pretty confident about that. Because he would have been in the same direction as Moonspawn, Mm -hmm. because he's damn near under Moonspawn. Mm -hmm. So if it had come from him, it would have almost been like it had been coming from Anamander Rake. It would have almost come from the same angle. But instead, it comes from 90 degrees away from the planes. So obviously, it's somebody else. Whether that is somebody who, you know, something that Tayshran knows about mm-hmm. or not, we don't know. Right. But it definitely wasn't Tayshran himself. So in our next little scene, um, Hairlock gets a makeover. <laughs> and we get our first real breakdown of how magic works. So Tattersail explains that basically mages crack the door to a kind of extra dimensional space called a warren and channel the power that comes out. And they use whichever warren chooses them. And warrens have different kind of patron deities and different characteristics. Mm-hmm. Hers is the Thier warren, the warren of light. Other warrens are like the, the Denul warren is mentioned here, which is the warren of healing. Mm-hmm. It just kind of really shows you how extraordinary and unusual it is for the emperor, the empress to have her own personal warren that doesn't have any patron god yeah, that's yeah. just used for like travel. So you kind of get a sense of like how unusual that is. Well, and that's the the comment that came from Topper. You know, we carved this mm-hmm. place out. Yeah. But at the time, you didn't know what that meant. Right. So the other thing, this is when uh, Sorry sort of pops back up again, right. right? And Tattersail says that she can taste her presence. And we mm-hmm. get a little bit of that beforehand, too, when she said she could feel like something in the darkness approaching. Mm-hmm. And then, boom, Sorry pops up, right? right? So I guess my question is, is it Riga or is it the presence of Cotillion... Anamanas or Cotillion that she senses. I'm assuming it's Cotillion, mm-hmm. but I don't think, but we don't, we can't f- forget that Riga's bouncing around in there somewhere as well. I think she says something to the extent of having the sense that a god has stepped yeah. into the mortal realms. Well, and we find out later in the cards that it's not just Cotillion. That's at play, and this might actually be something from chapter three, but we find out also that it's Opon. Mm-hmm. So we don't, we presume it's Cotillion. Mm-hmm. 
but we can't rule out the possibility that it's Opon or somebody else we don't even know about. Right. So Tattersail finally kind of has the realization that the attack came from the plane and she assumes that Tayshran is behind it. Mm-hmm. Quick Ben is doing some kind of magic-y something here um, with a package. And as far as Tattersail knows, Hairlock dies. What I noted here is Sorry says to Quick Ben, I felt you keeping me away. That wasn't very nice. Yeah. Like, just like another one of the kind of horror notes here is the creepy little girl. Mm-hmm, for sure. <laughs> saying stuff like that. But it kind of highlights how creeped out Quick Ben is of her. Yeah, for sure. So they try to give Tattersail this package, mm-hmm. you know, and she's like, I don't even. I don't even know what I would be accepting. Like, yeah. like she's freaked out by it, as yeah. she should be. As she should be. She doesn't even know why she should be freaked out about it. Right. Yet, and she's freaked out about yeah. it. Yeah. But they talk to her, and they say, essentially, you hate Tayshren, we hate Tayshren. <laughs> right. You want to stick it to Tayshren? This is the way you stick it to Tayshren. Mm-hmm. Right. So Tattersail takes her creepy package and, and goes off. The squad kind of talks about things a little bit. And what we get, understand is that there's some kind of plan going on. This deal that they've struck with Hairlock, nobody's really happy about it. But they're looking for answers for some kind of question. And they're not really decided on what what it is that they need to do next. Um, but nobody's happy about their situation. Nobody's happy about Sorry being around. No, you also get the first hints that also the Quick Ben and Caleb are attempting to convince Whiskey Jack of something. Mm-hmm. You don't really know what it is yet. Right. But you can tell that they're attempting to convince him of something. Mm-hmm. So the next scene we have is uh, Tattersail walks back to her tent. And I wrote down a couple of quotes here. She says that the air was febrile with soldiers screaming their pain. The sound, a chilling reminder that war is always a thing of grief. And this really struck me because this is something you don't get in every fantasy book. You know, we often have war being romanticized with like, they'll pay lip service to the human cost. Mm -hmm. But Erickson really makes you feel it like down to your bones. I mean, the pile of limbs outside of the surgeon's tent. Pretty horrific. You know, and she says, in some military headquarters back in the empire's capital of Unta, 3,000 leagues distant, an anonymous aide would paint a red stroke across the second army on the active list. Thus would the death of 9,000 men and women be noted and then forgotten. Yeah, that's very powerful. The only other author who I think also does a good job of treating this this way is George R. R. Martin Mm. in A Song of Ice and Fire. Mm -hmm. But even he doesn't really treat it this way. His take is more on sort of looking at the devastation that it places on the around the periphery, mm-hmm. like the towns yeah. that the armies marched through and mm-hmm. the way that the soldiers behave, you know, not on right. the battlefield. So even his stuff in the battles themselves, there's a little bit of romanticizing, mm-hmm. you know, it's everything that happens on the periphery oh, that's, sure. that's fucked up. And you in his, got his, his Targaryen world. and his breastplate of rubies. And, yeah. yeah. So, so he, he sort of juxtaposes those things where it seems like, from what I've seen of Erickson so far, 
There's there's no romanticizing it. It's just all the gritty, terrible. Well, and I stuff. think what Erickson yeah. gives us is not only a commentary on the human cost of war, but also on the futility that's inherent in a war of imperial conquest. Like yeah. there's no, we're saving our village from extinction here. We don't get <laughs> no. the perspective of the people of Pale who are defending no. their homes. I mean, it's just like soldiers fighting because otherwise they'll be court-martialed and executed, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, there's no, yeah. Every Everybody on that field is a prisoner of the empire mm-hmm. in one way or another. The on both sides of the both sides of the battle line. Oh yeah, I mean even like the camaraderie between the soldiers seen here, like at least in part, is just based on like a cynical sense of reciprocity, you know. And the exceptions to that um, that we see in the bridge burners and in you know Tattersail's feelings for Kalo just like seem that much more special. But let's talk about. Tattersail and her creepy toy because this scene just absolutely is chilling so she comes into her tent she's got this weird package and just the description of it it's like there are pieces of it moving it and she but anyway she puts it down and she's she's kind of shell-shocked so she just is kind of standing there she walks away and the package moves Mm -hmm. and then it's like she gets at a knife and she calmly cuts the seams of the back. And I'm like, I would be stabbing that bitch. <laughs> what are you doing? It just, it really plays out like a scene from a horror movie. And then a fucking puppet comes out. Yeah. Crawls out. It's painted with features to look like hairlock. I know. That's crazy. And it's like, hey. And, and, what's my, th- up? and my thought is, where the hell did they get that fucking marionette? I mean, like he must have made it. I guess. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's where did you f- find that fucking marionette from? <laughs> like, they were in a tunnel under a mountain. Like, <laughs> didn't there's no? Did they stumble upon a marionettes or us store under there? It's a really bad place to put a business. I knew that there was some sort of soul transfer thing going on. Right. So I knew that whatever was in there was Hairlock in mm-hmm. some way. Right. I thought it was like something that was holding his right. soul that it would, you know, like a, like what's those things in Harry Potter? Horcrux. Like, yeah. So I thought it was something yeah. like that. So when a freaking marionette pops out of there, <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. Like we have... <laughs> We have entered a really weird <laughs> chapter here. Like, it really kicks it up a notch. So like, you mentioned to me at some point that there was something that happened. I think it was in this chapter that hooked you. Oh, it was definitely the creepy the, puppet. Okay, yeah. <laughs> like, okay. what the hell? Like, because up until then, I'm like. Oh, you know, I kind of like that it's a chubby lady, and okay, there's magic. It's kind of confusing. What the fuck is going on? Pup- I have no idea. The puppet is out there, but I like it. <laughs> now I'm gonna. I'm. There's something that I have as a memory from my childhood that I have never been able to reconcile. Mm-hmm. But this reminds me of it. Oh, so I'll put it out there for the podcast listening world. 
to tell me if this is just a weird fucked up part of my brain that I've created or if this actually existed in real life. I I honestly don't know anymore. Mm -hmm. But it reminds me of what I think was a movie from my childhood that was weird where there were like two kids and they were carrying around a basket that had a head in it. But the head would like talk to them. And it and in this like movie, it wasn't like people weren't like, oh my God, it's a fucking head. Like <laughs> like everybody talked it seemed like it was normal. I remember that from my childhood, and I have never been able to figure out what movie or show that came from. Or if it was just a horrible dream you had one or time. Or if it was just a horrible dream that I had one time. Oh my time. God, that's so weird. But that is what it reminded me of, particularly mm-hmm. because of the opening of the package with right. the fur. Because like I see this basket yeah. with like red cloth and like yeah. red and white check cloth and you open it and it's a head and he's like, hey guys, you know, like in my dream slash memory. Oh my so God. somebody tell me if I'm making that shit up or it's getting real here. It's getting very real at the No Pants Podcast <laughs> Network. <laughs> so after her initial surprise and a short conversation with her new friend Hairlock the Puppet, Tattersail's deck of dragons calls out to her. So this is another layer of magic. I know they right? have sort of a a tarot card sort of thing going on but the cards seem to represent real people or players they're not symbolic it's not like okay this card means that you know you might be unlucky or whatever i or whatever way we can interpret it to get you to pay us money (laughs) what you know but anyway they they represent real people real forces and they can't be used by everybody and they can't be used all of the time so the deck calls out to tattersail and she draws the Knight of Dark, which represents Anamanda Rake, and Opon, the twin gods of chance. Now, right before she does this, so she's mm-hmm. talking about the deck. Right. And she's like, there's a she has like an internal conversation of like, why are you so like it's been so long? Why are you why do you have this trepidation about using these mm-hmm. cards? And she says something that only on like the fourth reading did I catch. Mm-hmm. And that is that mock of mock's hold fame, mm-hmm. hence the prologue, used to be Tattersale's lover. Yes. So she was like there. Yeah. When the emperor like had his coup. Yes. So she has no reason to like the emperor either. Indeed. So yeah, I did write down for my notes the cards, and I've mm-hmm. been doing this because I just I feel like it's going to be important, right? So I've I've been writing down the cards and sort of the descriptions from the cards mm-hmm. just so I can catalog it, yeah, and come back to it. So the Knight of Dark, half human, half dragon, jet black skin, two handed sword, trailing smoke with ethereal chains, and something indistinct hovering over his head. So I think what's important to note about these cards is they change from time to time yeah. or they, or certain aspects seem more important than others um, from time to time. So yeah, obviously that, and she knows that that one represents Animator Rake. The card that represents Opon has 
twins on it, but the lady's head is high. So I guess the lady and the Lord of Chance, the twins, mm-hmm. represent different facets of luck. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's significant. Yeah, it says Opon, uh, or my notes say Opon, two-headed gesture, female atop, male on bottom, suggesting that luck pulled back rather than pushed forward. Mm-hmm. The threat of success, what that means, we don't really know. Right. And then the reference to the spinning coin between the hands of the male and female counterpart. Yep. The other thing I noted about the cards, I don't know if it happens here or in chapter three, but she also references a shaping. Mm-hmm. Whereas typically you would think of this as a reading, mm-hmm. like reading what's happening, mm-hmm. passive, interpreting right. what is, but it gets referred to as a shaping, mm-hmm. as though there's an ability to influence things. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's through the cards or through the knowledge of the cards, which mm-hmm. gives you the ability to sort of shape what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. But I did note that the word shaping seems interesting here because it represents sort of an active element to it mm-hmm. that you never typically get with like tarot cards or something like that. Yeah. What it means, I don't really understand. Well, let's get into chapter three. Let's do it. In this chapter, we catch up with our old friend Paran, who receives word that the girl he's been hunting for the adjunct is with the bridge burners at Pale. He's being sent to take command of the squad and take Sari out. He's escorted by a claw agent into Pale and warned that the bridge burners don't keep captains very long. Poor Paran no sooner meets his new squad as he is stabbed in an alley by Cotillion. Mm. Meanwhile, Tattersail gives a fatigued reading to Tayshren and gets pulled into the scheme cooked up by Quick Ben and Hairlock. And all the while, Opon's coin is spinning. Spinning, baby. That's right. So, should we start off with the Snapter with this one as well? I As is protocol. Want to read part of this to you because right. this Snapter jumped out at me in a way that it hasn't before. Mm, okay. Thelemin Tritheno Toblechai find the names of a people so reluctant to fade into oblivion. Their legacy rots my cynical cast and blights my eyes with bright glory. Cross not the loyal cage embracing their unassailable heart. Well, then we meet Belurden, and this yeah. snapter just makes that scene, if it could possibly have been more heartbreaking, even more heartbreaking. Yeah, for sure. This yeah, little sure. tidbit of knowledge about the Thelemen as being some kind of almost vanished race. Mm-hmm. And just that last line just gets you. It does. My right note, in my feelings. So it, it's an interesting use of language there because if you if you don't read it carefully, you hear the words rot, mm-hmm. blight, mm-hmm. cage. Like you hear this very negative stuff. When in actually, what it actuality, what it's telling you about is sort of like hope and perseverance. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's an interesting choice of words to express that sentiment. Mm-hmm. The other thing I noted is that Steven Erickson loves the word men here. Mm. It's like the third time he's third chapter. Uh huh. It's the third time he's used that word. I had to look the word up. Uh huh. Like he, you know. He's using it. He's throwing men here's around like like they aren't two thousand ton blocks of stone, right? 
The other thing I noted is that this Snapter is written by Gatos. God. <laughs> God hose? God hose. Like, what's the billboard for that look like? <laughs> it's no got milk, I can tell you that. <laughs> so in this chapter, we catch up with Geno's Paran. And in my mind, Paran has like leveled up. Like he went from greatest showman Zach Efron to <laughs> down to earth Zach Efron. Well, I mean in the last two years. That's just the way my brain has pictured. I mean, it. on the scale of Zach Efron, that is <laughs> I'm just saying he's prime Efron something. right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Like before he was a pretty face, but now he's sort of, he's got some gravitas. I mean, I think I could pick Zac Efron out of a lineup. <laughs> Plenty of people are going to know what I'm talking about. Okay. All right. Exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. So Peron is here. He's on a ship um, heading to a new assignment and Topper pops into his cabin and he's wearing the same outfit that he was the last time that Peron saw him, which is so embarrassing. Oh, I know, right? Oh, my God, the same dress? How tacky. <laughs> Topper manages to find Peron, pop out in his presence while he's in a moving boat. Uh-huh. No one is safe. Right? R- right. Yes. If the claw can pop in on anyone while they're, you know, doing something they don't want anyone else to see, like dancing to Katy Perry (laughs) or watching Lost, (laughs) then nobody is safe. Because this is, I mean, that is some serious shit. Mm -hmm. Find him on a moving boat. And his only response is, ugh. That same green outfit <laughs> instead of... I love it. Instead of, oh my God, we're all going to die. Right. I mean, it's the most <laughs> Peron thing to do. Peron has really grown since we saw him last, um, but he's still mouthy as hell. Oh, yeah. And he's still extremely arrogant. Mm-hmm. So he's not impressed by Topper's extremely impressive display of skills. Yeah. But Topper tells him that not only has he found Sari, but he says that Sari has corrupted the bridge burners and maybe the entire second and third armies as well. Yeah. Let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. He says, your recruit is showing her power. She's corrupted the bridge burners, possibly even Dujek, one arm, and the entire second and third armies on Genabacus. Now, third army? Because prior to this, there's never been any reference to the Third Army. So I'm pretty sure that during the battle, the Second and Third Armies were there. Mm. I remember Second, Fifth, and Sixth Armies being in Pale, and maybe it was there was the some other reference to the First and Third Armies being somewhere else entirely. It's mm-hmm. not all that important, but I right. just sort of. Noted, like, what? We haven't... The only reference to the third we've heard was the offhand comment in the prologue where 
Gano says, oh, you're with the third. Mm-hmm. But that was nine years ago. Right. And he's clearly with the second. Right. It does. I, I don't think it means a whole lot, but mm-hmm. I would, you know, or, or it means that there is a reference to the third somewhere and I just didn't pick it up. Right. But I, I seem to recall the second, fifth, and sixth being in pale and there was some reference to the first and third being somewhere else. Right. And I don't even know if there is a fourth army. It seems like there should be. The other Sorry. five is right out. Right Sorry. out. Yeah. <laughs> also, he's alleging that she has corrupted the bridge burners. Mm-hmm. In what way? Because it seems to me that all of Whiskey's Jack Squad is scared of her. But how is that corrupted? Certainly, no indication that Dujek One Arm is like listening to this fifteen-year-old girl. It's it's a weird statement to make, and I don't know if it references the fog of war Mm -hmm. or if it references that topper is trying to make things sound more outrageous than they are you know i don't know how much weight to put in that that's a good point i but i think what we can take away from this is that topper confirms some of the things that were insinuated in the last chapter that lazine is out to get the second army she said she wants dujek Disarmed. Oh, God. So bad. (laughs) That's so bad. But yeah, she wants um, Dujek and Whiskey Jack and all this, these old guard people. She's, she wants them out of the picture. Speaking of other bad jokes uh, hidden in the text, I just got this. They're the bridge burners. Uh huh. Because they burn their bridge with the Empress. Um, they were bridge burners before. I know, but... But you're right, that is a little on the nose. Touch on the nose? Yeah. So what struck me about this whole situation as well is that Parade has definitely grown in, I would say, in cynicism. He acknowledges that he's being used. I am used to being used. Mm -hmm. He's gotten over his idealistic view of you know, the soldier's life, but he still has that, like, I'm invincible kind of attitude. Like, yeah, for sure. So Topper is kind of like insinuating to him that he's, that Lauren wants him to take out Whiskey Jack or, you know, and it never occurs to Peron that he might not be able to do that. Like, like he immediately goes into this spiel about, oh, Whiskey Jack, will your blood be on my hands next? (laughs) You know, and it's like, like, so, you know, this is a guy who Tattersail was like, oh, my gosh, you're Whiskey Jack. And Peron's yeah, like, yeah. oh, I hope I'm not going to have to kill him, too. Please don't I tell mean, me, you know. I mean, oh, man. It's like, uh, am I, Chad Dukes, going to have to kill The Rock? Right. <laughs> am I going to have to kill Dwayne The Rock Johnson with my bare hands? <laughs> right. <sighs> it would be a shame. <laughs> It would also be impossible. <laughs> yeah, it never occurs to him in a million years that he wouldn't be able to take out this like legendary elite squad of soldiers what, by well, himself. Right. And <laughs> Topper, even at some point, he says, you know, if you're not feeling up to the task, now is the time to say so. Uh-huh. Now, to be fair, if he said, I'm not feeling up to the task, I think Topper right. would have put a blade in him right there on right. the spot. Right. So I don't think it would have been wise of him to say it. 
But he, at the very end of this scene, he says, if things have gotten that bad, this is internal dialogue. Mm -hmm. Or no, I think he does. He says it out loud. If things have gotten this bad, why not just send a claw assassin? Mm -hmm. You know, which I'm I'm thinking the same. In fact, I think like three sentences before he says it, I wrote in my notes, like, why wouldn't you just send in somebody else? Why are you sending mm-hmm. this incompetent, mm-hmm. like, person with no, like, history of being able to do... He wasn't raised to do this. He wasn't trained for 20 years like a claw or 15 years like a claw assassin. Why are you sending this guy after him? And then earlier in the section, Topper says, I see you've made no effort to improve on courtesy, Captain. I admit, I understand nothing of the adjunct's faith in you. And those sort of phrases got me to think what if the adjunct wants him to fuck up like what if he's meant to be a distraction now i can't really think of a good conceivable rational reason why she would want him to go in and deliberately fuck things up Mm -hmm. other than she's got a lot of other you know a lot of other cards that she's playing at the same time Mm -hmm. and i'm sure that lauren does but it crosses my mind like because it just if it's this important, it seems really bizarre that you would leave it up to this person mm-hmm. who none of them seem to respect. Lauren doesn't respect him. Topper clearly doesn't respect him. Why would you trust him to do something so important? Well, and the, it, that seems to be the initial reaction to Peron, at least. The claw agent who picks him up. Uh, when he when he arrives at Pale, it has the same reaction to him. Like, who is this Yahoo? Yeah. But I wonder, though, if it has something more to do with Peron's integrity still being intact and that that might be a good person to try and infiltrate the bridge burners. It could be. The other thing that crosses my mind is there's concern about the nobles regaining power. Mm-hmm. He's the heir to that family. Yeah. It's... Vi- Almost everything that I'm seeing so far of the way the Empire behaves is like, who are the people I like the least right. or that I'm the most afraid of? Let me find a way to put them in the most danger. Mm-hmm. So That's a good point. I'm beginning to wonder, particularly with what happens at the end, mm-hmm. if all of this with Peron is just a way to separate him from his powerful family mm-hmm. and deny his father a male heir. I don't mm-hmm. know how much a male heir matters mm-hmm. in this society, but um, but to try to rob influence of, like, what if none of this has anything to do with Ganos at all? Mm-hmm. And it's really all about his father. Mm-hmm. None of that would shock me. Well, it might also be a little bit about um, sending an underestimated person in um, much like Cotillion kind of did with Sari. Yeah, mm-hmm. could be. Either way, what we find out here is that Peron is not really down with the Empire anymore. No. Not that he ever was like super rah-rah, but he's seen some things. He's like become jaded. Well, and he calls the Emperor, like he talks about the Emperor's Empress being paranoid. And he calls that paranoia out in front of Topper. Mm-hmm. And Topper is like, you idiot. 
I've killed people for less. Right. Yeah. He's not hiding it. Well, and here's the thing about the empire, because the Malazan empire is like corrupt, but you can't put your finger on any one source of corruption. You know, there's not like one person or group of people and say, okay, the corruption is there. And it's not like personal. Like Lazine does seem to have it in for most of our main characters, but we don't get the impression that Kellenved was like benevolent and altruistic either. No, no. In fact, we find out later, you know, he was insane, you know. Yeah. So like the corruption is sort of inherent in the machine in this like kind of ever expanding juggernaut. And like, I think that's just a main thing that's being explored in this book. And I kind of see the empire as being the main antagonist in this book. Mm -hmm. So I wrote down this quote that I feel like really emphasizes that point. Paran thinks at some point, at the very heart of things, he realized he no longer knew who was the ultimate betrayer in all of this, if a betrayer there must be. Was the empire the empress, or was it something else, a legacy, an ambition, a vision at the far end of peace and wealth for all, or was it a beast that could not cease devouring? Mm-hmm. I think it's a beast that can't cease devouring. Yeah, the empire sucks. Sorry. <laughs> Well, it's sort of, there's a concept, and I, I, I can't think of a good, succinct name for it, but it's the the idea that, like, there doesn't have to be a bad guy or a mm-hmm. dictator or a Hitler or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't have to be this overwhelming arch bad for it, for the system to be bad. Like, there mm-hmm. doesn't have to be one person calling the shots who's evil for the whole system collectively mm-hmm. to be corrupt and evil. Yeah. Like, there's a more succinct way of saying it, but I can't think of what it is right now. <laughs> well, there are like kind of these classic forms of conflict in literature. Mm-hmm. You have man versus man, man versus, this is a very much a uh, man versus society. Yeah. Kind of story or man versus the, Man versus the machine. Mm-hmm. Man versus the man. The <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so we switch over to Tattersail in what, for me, was the most heart-wrenching scene of this entire very, very sad couple of chapters. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a young Marine comes to Tattersail for help, and apparently Belurden, who survived the battle, has been sitting in this spot for five days with a bag of his lover's remains. That's pretty grim. Just just sitting there. Yeah. Sackcloth and ashes. And I'm like, ugh. It's horrible. So you might just be like, kind of like, wow, what a weirdo. But I feel like the, the snapter in the beginning kind of sets up, uh, gives us a little bit of knowledge about Belurden, his race, and who he is. That helps you understand a little bit more. You know, what's really fascinating is we have, and I referenced this a little bit earlier with my list of batshit insane things, right? But this empire is just sort of gobbling up all these societies, but they're not, it's not even just human societies. It's Telemann, it's Morant, it's apparently Bargast, whatever they are. There's all these sort of intricate, complete, cultures 
that are just absolutely getting swept up into this thing. You don't get a chance in the story to really hear about them because in the story, they're not really getting a chance to be them. Like their will and what they want and and actualizing, you know, their own cultural ideals is so unimportant to the empire Mm -hmm. that you just gloss over the fact that, you know, these Telemen are like a noble race of, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, not important. Yeah. But it does give you a a sense of the breadth and complexity Mm -hmm. of this empire. Yeah. And And this is as good a place to ask it as any. Are the Moranth bug people? <laughs> they might be bug people. They seem like they, they're they hinting that they're bug people. <laughs> like in chapter four, one of them's going to take off his helmet and it's going to be a grasshopper. Like. <laughs> so Belurden rejects the idea that Teishren was behind the this mm-hmm. attack. Um and he points out that in the beginning, when the, the emperor was was taking over, he kind of went crazy. But Teishren stood at his side. He said that he shaped the emperor's dream and so opposed the emperor's nightmare. So that's an important bit of background. It is. It's also where we find out that the emperor, as much as we really don't like what we know about Lacine so far, the emperor was apparently crazy. It doesn't sound like he was a lot better. Right. Like, you know, he was just the devil that they knew at the time. Right. He says the emperor had a knack for gathering the right people around him, but he wasn't a fool. He knew betrayal would come from that group. What made us, this is Tattersail and her her mages, Mm -hmm. the right people was our power. The emperor is gone, but the power is still here. I wrote down this quote as well, and my following sentence is, is this why Lacine's trying to get rid of so many of them? Because they are the power of the old empire. That's mm-hmm. what Calum would have you believe. Mm-hmm. But again, Blurden doesn't think that Tayshren is right. out there to try to betray. It also doesn't seem to me, it, it's not that I think Tayshren is up to anything good. It's more that it doesn't seem to make sense to me that he would be behind a purge of all that are powerful because right. he would be marked just as much as the rest of them. Right. So I really like the transition here into the next sort of scene. Uh, the bridge burners are standing there and they're discussing their plan. And right after the scene where Bullardin is sitting there with a sack of stinking remains and yeah, he, yeah, he yeah. does allow Tattersail to put a sealing spell over it so it's not going to bother the soldiers. We call this one but, the, the glade. Right. We go go right from that into um, the bridge burners talking. And the first thing one of them says is, it smells bad from here to the throne. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. Things are not looking good. In in the space of time that has passed between the battle and now, things are devolving in the second army. An officer had come to the bridge burners, the 35 who remained, and mm-hmm. conveyed Tayshren's condolences and blah, blah, blah. He was found garroted the next day. And well, and we find out later, this I think is relevant, mm-hmm. we find out later, or strongly hinted later, that that uh, captain who was sent there was a claw operative. Yeah, dissension is definitely rising in the army. Yeah, and what what Whiskey Jack says is that, you know, a year ago, I would have thought that's something that our soldiers were incapable of. Right. Which I also think is going to be really relevant at the end of this chapter. Mm-hmm. That idea that, like, that they would go in and assassinate a captain. He said, but Whiskey Jack says, but now I'm not so sure. 
And they speculate whether or not Sari could be a claw agent. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the dynamic is definitely Callum and Quick Ben want her out. They they would do her in a second. Whiskey Jack seems to be defending her and kind of over and over is saying, nope, you know, I'm not discussing it anymore. We're not going to kill this 15-year-old girl. Which in this world where everything seems so dark, this little interstitial scene, I think, sheds a great deal of light on the morality of these people. Mm-hmm. That it's, it is devolving. Mm-hmm but that these are not the kind of men who, at least up to this point, would have gone and assassinated an officer Mm -hmm. just for insulting them. Right. Would not have turned, you know, and shown disloyalty and attacked the Empire because they talk about it now, but up to this point, they never would have. And despite the fact that they think that she's pure evil incarnate, won't kill... A little girl, despite, Mm -hmm. these are men who kill for a living. Mm -hmm. So it does show that there is sort of a a code that they they have, that they live by. So they head down off the hill, and Whiskey Jack makes a comment that um, that they'd better head back. They said, anyone on the wall watching us might be getting antsy. Mm -hmm. And again, we cut to the next scene, and Tayshren is on the wall watching the bridge burners. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. And being like, ah, bridge burners. Remember them? You remember them, right, Tattersail? <laughs> you met with them right after the battle. Mm-hmm. Even though I tried to have them all killed. Yeah. Right. Hey, remember what you were doing right after all your friends died? <laughs> I do. So Tayshren has asked Tattersail there to give him a a telling or a shaping. Yes. A reading of the cards. Just like we had in the tent, we once again have the the magical tarot mm-hmm. card thing all over again. Right. And this time, an Ascendant, capital A, reaches out and gives power to this reading, kind of. And she senses, you know, not just some kind of supernatural power, but like personal characteristics. Like cool, so this is a, amused, almost fickle, yes. she says. So she draws five cards, the orb... The Virgin of High House Death, the Assassin of High House Shadow, Opon again, and a crown representing Darugistan, the last free city. Although we don't really know why it represents Darugistan. So it just does. It just does, damn it. <laughs> Orb is judgment and true sight, but we have no but I have no idea right. what that means. Uh the Virgin High House Death, which is sorry. sorry. But these are the words that are sort of perplexing. Uh, scarred and blindfolded with blood on her hands. The blood is not her own. The crime is not its own. The cloth against her eyes is wet. What the hell does that mean? There's a lot. I'm sure there's a lot there, but I can't. I don't have enough context and history to really make heads or tails of it. Mm-hmm. But that was the one that I puzzled over the most. The Assassin High House Shadow seems obviously to be Cotillion. Right. Opon, the card is almost identical to what we had in the last drawing with hair with Hairlock. And then again, something about Darugistan. So we also learn a little bit about the Shadow Warren and the High House Shadow. Yeah. Apparently, this is a new Warren. So this is a thing. 
Yeah, that Warrens can sort of pop up. And a lot of times they don't last. To me, okay. So again, I read through this multiple times. It wasn't until I was taking notes and sort of writing Mm -hmm. this out that it sort of dawned on me, at least what I think this means. Mm -hmm. So these Warrens, as we referenced, are where mages draw their power from, right? Right. And that concept is not unique in fantasy. Right. You know, the idea that there's some other planar space or power or deities, you know, that Mm -hmm. like that isn't unique to this, even though, you know, the particular flavor may be unique, but the Mm -hmm. concept isn't, right? But this is what I found to be fascinating, is the sense that that other world Mm -hmm. is dynamic Mm -hmm. and has its own sort of you know, beings and goals and mm-hmm. desires and power struggles and politics. Yeah. And that, and if all the magical power stems from there, then that means the way magic manifests itself in this world would always be in flux. Mm-hmm. So what is true today may not be true tomorrow. Yeah. That's pretty damn interesting. It is. And I did not just use the word interesting. <laughs> I said Damn, damn interesting. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it is damn interesting. So the Shadow Warren, Tayshran calls it a bastard realm and says that it stinks of too much power. Mm. Um, it's run by Amanus or Shadow Throne, who we've met. Um, I thought it was important to notice that the the spinning coin that Tattersail is sort of hearing in the back of her head um, wobbles when sorry enters the city. Mm-hmm. And then after she leaves, um, she goes back to her tent and she decides that it's time to, for her to jump in with both feet. And she arranges a meeting with whiskey Jack. Yep. 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 The, the other thing that came up is she said, death's virgin and the assassin of high house shadow. There was a connection there somehow. And it bothered Opon. And that I think is telling, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, again, we keep referencing Opon in relation to the gestures and you know it's tied to luck mm-hmm. but that's all we know about it but right but that apparently it is you know like i guess amanas and cotillion or the the warren of shadow it is also an active player mm-hmm. and is taking an interest in what's going on and doesn't like the fact that cotillion and sorry are connected even mm-hmm. though it doesn't really understand right why or what it is but again, again it's this other like unintroduced active participant mm-hmm. silently sitting in the corner of the room manipulating things but we know we have nothing no idea who it is mm-hmm. but it's the spinning coin right like it it's so it's a powerful force here but we don't really understand it mm-hmm. this is this is the kind of magic system that I get super excited about it mm-hmm. because it's not all spelled out mm-hmm. and ruled it out and meted out, mm-hmm. you know, on a slide rule where I can put it on a spreadsheet and yeah. tell you who would win. Like the more you start, you know, defining and ranking things. Uh, to me, the less interesting it becomes, mm-hmm. particularly when the only way to sort of create surprise is by creating a new rule that was always there before, but mm-hmm. I never tell you, you know, 
whereas when things are always sort of ambiguous, mm-hmm. then that's what, to me, gives it a sense of mystery and magic. So mm-hmm. the fact that I don't know what this is, right? it has a certain degree of frustration to it, mm-hmm. but it's also what keeps it mysterious and magical and feels sort of awesome about it because it's something I can't comprehend at this point. Well, you definitely have to have a a higher level of tolerance for ambiguity to enjoy these books. You have to for be sure. willing to read and go, I have no idea what that means. I'll figure it out later. Yeah, I'm not I'm not you know? going to know what that means. And for me, I think that's I, I got stuck so many times starting this series because I would read and I would be like Kural Galen, what is that? And then I had to go back and has it been mentioned before? It's not explained. It doesn't get it doesn't How get am explained. I supposed to know? Yeah. Where's the chart? And um finally when I was able to just be like, you know what? I'm I just want to find out what happens to Tattersail and I just barreled mm-hmm. through and then I could really enjoy it. Yeah. So turn off your chart maker <laughs> for this bad boy. <laughs> It'll all make sense in the end. So Peron has finally reached the city. He's arrived on a flying coral. Yeah, so there's giant flying bugs as well. Yeah. You didn't, we didn't even have that on your list. No, because that was chapter... Oh, that, that was chapter that was, two. That was only chapter <laughs> two. That was only chapter two. Only chapter two. No flying grasshoppers. Yeah. Um, we get some more background about the makeup of the second army. And we've had this... Um, this place, the Seven Cities, mentioned before, mm-hmm. but we find out that recruits from the Seven Cities are are partic- have always been kind of particularly unhappy being part of the Empire. So Harlock is from the Seven Cities. Quick Ben and Calum are both from the Seven Cities, mm-hmm. um, and and the Seven Cities recruits make up a large percentage yeah. of soldiers in this campaign, which is why it's kind of all gone to hell. We also find out that back in the day, in the time of the emperor, Whiskey Jack um, and his seventh company um, were instrumental in running the seven cities mage cabal out of the wastes. And that is how he met Quick Ben. So the quote is, this is the quote from Talk the Younger, Whiskey Jack once commanded his own army. Mm -hmm. Peron's head snapped around. That fact had been thoroughly stripped from the annals. As far as Empire history was concerned, it never happened. Back in the days when Decim Altor ran the military. Now, why in the world would this be a shock to Peron? He met him at Mox Hole during this time. So it's not a shock. The information is not a shock. It's a shock that Talk the Younger knows about it. Oh. Oh, that's... Why he said, as far as the imp, it had been scrubbed. Right. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And that's why, that's when he starts to realize that here is even a claw agent whose loyalty is more in line with the Second Army and with Whiskey Jack than with the Empress. That makes more sense than reading it that way. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it just goes to emphasize the, the bonds that the Second Army have made and how close they really are to breaking off. Mm-hmm. And Talk the Younger kind of warns Peron and says that he's been sending warnings back uh, up the chain that Lacine shouldn't mess with Whiskey Jack. She shouldn't mess with uh, mm-hmm. Dujek One Arm, I guess, unless she wants to get rid of the entire Second Army, but that the loyalties there are shifting. He says, that's when the bureaucrats swallow up the army, damn mm-hmm. jackals. They've been sniping each other. 
ever since. And to Hood's gate with the campaigns, you know, and he remarks, this claw is different, you know. But here was my thought as well. If I wanted to root out dissent in my ranks, mm-hmm. I would put somebody in there who at least ostensibly had contrary views mm-hmm. to help me identify the dissenters. Mm-hmm. I don't know how deep the treachery runs in this world, so mm-hmm. I'm suspicious of everybody. Right. So to me, when Talk the Younger is saying that, I'm like, is it because he's really loyal to the second and he's been there forever? Mm-hmm. Or is it because he's trying to find out what Peron will say? Mm-hmm. Hard to know at this point. Hard to know, yeah. It doesn't seem like that's the case. That seems overly suspicious. Mm-hmm. Particularly for a character we... Uh, you know, or have only just met, but who knows? So this is kind of a turning point for Peron as well. When that that overconfidence that we talked about before about oh, I hope I'm not going to have to kill Whiskey Jack. Yeah. At this conversation with Talk the Younger makes him realize, oh shit, I might die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Talk lets Peron know in. in no uncertain terms that he's very likely to be stabbed yeah. by his own squad. This <laughs> makes Peron feel somewhat dismayed. Yeah, that's like that's either the first or the second time it gets referenced in this chapter. You're probably not going to survive, right. which is why it's so shocking when it actually when, does. Like three yeah. pages later, it's like, oh shit, oh shit. <laughs> He really got stabbed. Well, because how often in novels do we hear that stuff like, oh, you're going to, you know. Uh, and then it goes it, on 10 chapters later. And you nothing know? ever happens, you know. Nope. Not, not in like, this hey, one. hey, how you doing, stab? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. So Peron goes into the barracks. He's immediately completely disrespected by Corporal Picker. And I just, I love this scene. So he walks in. There's a soldier laying there. She's kind of like barefoot on her bed. And, uh. She's just like, who are you? Whatever. And then she finds out that he's a new captain and she's still like, whatever. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, by the way, Picker is my new favorite character. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my favorite part of that interaction is he says to her, I'm looking for the ninth. She says, what are they in trouble again? Instead of mm-hmm. answering the question. Right. Right. And then he proceeds to ask her a bunch of, well, what is the command structure? Who's your captain? Is it always about, like, who else is in the tavern? Oh, the ninth. Mm-hmm. She knew all along, but just chose not to tell him. Mm-hmm. The kicker of it is, it's not as though the answer to the question is particularly valuable information or anything. Mm-hmm. She's just fucking with him. Oh, yeah. And she wants him to know that she's just fucking with him. Oh, yeah. Like, I love he says something like, are you like the average bridge burner then? Like, is this what I'm going to be dealing with? And she goes, all the average ones are dead. Right. Like, we just went something incredibly horrific and we give zero fucks about you. Exactly. Who the fuck are you? (laughs) So they're all kind of assuming that he has come from the Empress to spy on them or possibly sabotage them. Yeah. The um the phrase that I like as well is she says the way I pick it said the character called picker right first blood you'll see on your hands is going to be your own 
she's now the second person to right. tell him he's going to die. Right. Well, and the I think that's how she gets her nickname is picking the odds. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, yeah, I caught that. Because she talks, she seems to know who's going to win the, all the gambling. Well, I love and, that. When Auntie comes in and says, "Yeah, you said Hedge was having a bad run. She yeah. says, he was, just not as bad as yours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so she also calls him out. She says, go back and lick, lick the Empress's feet. Mm-hmm. And Peron says, they're clean enough. Mm-hmm. He was not sure how to deal with this situation. Mm-hmm. Part of him wanted to draw his sword and cut Picker in half. Mm-hmm. Another wanted to laugh, and that one had an edge of hysteria to it. Mm-hmm. And I wrote down, they're going to eat him alive. Yes. Like, <laughs> so I wrote this down. Here, Peron realized, nobody cared one whit about court influences mm-hmm. and mutually favorable deals. Mm-hmm. These shortcuts swelled his chances of dying and dying fast. Mm-hmm. If not for the adjunct, he'd have been totally unprepared to take command. Or is he going to die because he's unpre- because she put him in this situation that he is obviously no business being in? It's like he's got no command experience. He's being placed in front of this in charge of the storied veteran unit in the middle of one of the most dangerous situations on the planet, seems like baptism by death. So Peron then goes into the inn. He meets Hedge, Mallet, and Trotz. Trotz is a bargast. Again, what's a bargast? It's like a big, uh, he's like a big kind of tusky looking thing. You <laughs> wouldn't know that. but I know what a bargast is in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh-huh. That's a, there's a monster called a bargast, mm-hmm. but it is not... Like this, trust right. me. <laughs> not playing cards. No, yeah. You're not going to find a bar guest playing cards in an inn. Uh-huh. Well, this one is. <laughs> and I, I love this part where Peron tells them, he just puts it out there. He's like, so, I hear you might stab me. Yeah. <laughs> and like everyone goes silent and looks at him. And he's like, listen, if you stab me, it better be because I deserve it. Well, so again, I read that the first time and I was like, I was like, well, that's actually kind of a pretty cool thing for him to say. Uh huh. And then I read through it the second time after I had sort of put together all that stuff that I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. about how the bridge burners have sort of a code of ethics mm-hmm. and about how Whiskey Jack said, you know, this is like, like, somebody potentially killing that captain right. was like something that he had never seen before. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a dark thing that's underlying this unit that like they won't even say out loud. Mm-hmm. So for him to walk into this unit in an inn where there are different units there. Mm-hmm. So it's for him to say that out loud is massively insulting. Right. For him to say it out loud in front of members of another unit mm-hmm. is a challenge. Mm. It's a call out. Mm-hmm. It's a bad thing that he said that. Mm. It is not like, oh, Peron's telling it like it is. Right. It's highly insulting. And that's why everyone is like, 
I don't know that they seem to take it that way, though. Well, I don't know that they seem to take it that way because they're they're trying to play it cool in around other people. But I'm I could be wrong, but I perceive the record scratch. Everybody stops. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets out of this place without singing the blues mm-hmm. moment as being them going this motherfucker here. Mm-hmm. Like I don't. They're not going to say that, but I think they're all thinking it. Hmm. That's not the way I took it. But so Peron goes off saying, tell Whiskey Jack he can find me in the barracks. And then he walks out and has his, he walks out and has some moments of silent introspection before getting stabbed to death. So Peron gets stabbed and he's completely outmatched by Sorry, who we, you know, we can tell that's who stabbed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And darkness starts to encroach, and then he hears a coin spinning, and the darkness... Stops. Recroaches. Or (laughs) just Whatever, just kind of stops. Yeah, yeah. Um, And he can hear some voices talking. Um, And and one is giggling, so we know that that's Amanus. Yeah. And it's obviously Amanus and Cotillion... Um, and they're hoping that by killing Paran, Lorne will get drawn into action. Yeah, I actually, I wrote down the entire, the entire back and forth between Sari, Cotillion, and Amanus because, again, l- much like chunks of the beginning of the first chapter and and chunks of the prologue, I think every word in this section is loaded with meaning. Oh, yeah. Even if I can't fully understand all of it yet. Yeah, lay it off. So, so first we have, you know, the, the sound of, of the coin, right? Something spinning, you know. So that, that we got. But then Peron hears voices. The accent was familiar, pulling him to a childhood memory, his father dealing with Dalhanese traders. And that's the accent of, I believe it's Cotillion. Don't know what that means, Mm -hmm. but that's the accent he hears. Keeping an eye on me? Another accent he recognizes, Canice, and the voice seemed to come from a girl or a child, yet he knew it was the voice of his killer. Coincidence, the other replied, then giggled. Someone, something I should say, has entered our warren. Mm. Uninvited. My hounds hunt among us, clearly. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't believe in coincidences. This is Cotillion. Again came the giggle. Nor do I. Two years ago, we began a game of our own. This is Amanus speaking. Mm-hmm. A simple settling of old scores. It seems we have stumbled into a wholly different game here in Pale. Whose, Cotillion says. I believe that's, I believe I'm accurately describing the speakers. Mm-hmm. I shall have that answer soon enough, Amanus says. Don't get distracted, Amanus, Cotillion says. Lacine remains our target, and the collapse of the empire she rules but never earned. I have, as always, Amanus says, supreme confidence in you, Cotillion. Then sorry, butts back in. I must be getting back, the girl said, moving away. Of course. I'm not sure which one of them it is this time. So this is the man Lorne sent to you? Yeah, I believe so, says sorry. I believe it's Sari saying this. I could be wrong. I, I don't think that Sari and Cotillion are separate at this point. I think it's just Cotillion. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
I believe so. Uh, this should draw her into the fray in any case, says Cotillion. And this is desirable, says Amanus. So that is the whole conversation he hears mm-hmm. while he's in that sort of space potentially before he dies. Mm-hmm. But again, it was only like the third reading of it that I noticed what you said in the beginning, darkness descends upon him. And then at the presence of these, you know, when the warren opens mm-hmm. and these two come about, the darkness ceases to encroach. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know what happens. In chapter four. Afterwards, because... You know, it it ends like with the, you know, at the end of this conversation and this is desirable and then it's over. Yeah. So we don't know if he lives or not. Not until you read chapter four. (laughs) Which I can do tonight. Yes, you can. That's exciting. So then what do you think? What's your prediction? Does he make it? Nice try. All right, so this is the time when we have our listener interaction. So before the before we record the episode, we'll put out a question on Facebook and Twitter and say, hey, we're going to be recording. Get your questions in. And we usually get a bunch of questions back. And this time, no difference. So <laughs> starting, in, starting with Twitter, Ian James Crone says, how are you guys coping with all the madness in the world? And which book have you reviewed or read? that you think best prepared you for the current times? Um, So we're coping. Um, You know, we, um, we're both kind of introverts a little bit, so it hasn't been as hard. It's the best pandemic I've ever lived through. other people. It's also the worst pandemic I've ever lived through. You know, we did have a kid get sick this week, so we were a little, um, that part wasn't fun, but no, we're coping. And, uh, as for books, well, I don't know, but I, I did just start watching a show on Netflix called counterpart and it's just sort of, it's not, I'm sorry, Amazon prime. If people want to look at it, it also doesn't has a non 23 year old underwear model as the lead, which I like, but it's a sort of alternate reality kind of show. And, um, without too many spoilers, there is a, a massive like flu pandemic, um, that plays largely into it. And I'm just, anyway, it was, it was made many years ago. Mm. Um, and so it was very chilling to watch, you know, given everything that's going on. Sorry, that doesn't really answer that question. I just was thinking a lot about that show today. I think of the books we've reviewed in the podcast, oh. I would say a combination of The Lies of Locke Lamora mm-hmm. and uh, Ready Player One. Oh yeah. Well, and there's a um a fantastic book called um Station Eleven that deals with like a sort of massive mega flu outbreak that kills most of the population and and humanity has to rebuild and stuff like that. We haven't quite gotten there yet. I I mean, maybe not outside of my brain, but inside <laughs> my brain, I'm just saying I'm ready. <laughs> Uh, so Chamomile on Twitter at Yellow Follows says, Hey guys, absolutely loving the read-through so far. Malazan's my favorite, and I'm glad you're liking it as well. In previous books you've read, magic has been subtle and generally unknown to most of the population. What do you guys think a society where it, magic, is so commonplace, what do you think that would be like? 
I mean, we kind of talked about that a little bit. We did. We did kind of talk about that a little bit. Bananas oh, is pretty cuckoo bananas. Also, I would say, you know, that uh, in Stormlight, magic was actually fairly well known to the general. Actually, I guess that's no, not true. Not really. No, the Spren were well known, right. But not, but not any of the impact of anything else around it. So, no, I think yeah, I think it would be pretty damn cuckoo bananas. And when there's that much power, I think. It makes the struggle for that power probably, uh, probably nastier. Mm-hmm. All right, I do not know how to pronounce this, but Elixir of Azazel on Twitter uh, says, "I loved this. I read Gardens of the Moon earlier this year, so it's really nice to remember all the little details that you talked about. When will the next episode come out?" Oh, and I and I answered that. So thank you for writing. Patrick Spinagle pimped us out to to some folks on Twitter talking about us and Caster Quest having excellent read-along podcasts for the King Killer Chronicles. So thank you for that, Patrick. And Mr. Ramos79 said, hey, can I get a shout out on the listener interactions? Hey. There you go. Shouting out. Oh, and also, by the way, any truth to the release date for Doors of Stone? There was a there was yeah. a rumor about it being in August. If it was going to be in August, we would know about it already. There already. would have been a parade. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. they have these placeholder. Yeah. Placeholder dates. Which I wish they would stop that. Man, Why that's annoying. Why do they do that? It's annoying. So they can sell more books. Yep. Unfortunately, now over to Facebook, uh, we start off with uh, Mr. Matt Hedges, who said, first off. Oh, man, that Siege of Pale was bad donkey. It was. It was bad donkey. Yes, it was. Secondly, Chad, it seems obvious there's something more complex going on at the Siege of Pale other than Tattersale's assessment of Tayshren went Turncloak. What is your prediction for what actually went on involving Tayshren at this battle? So I guess that's for me. I should have let you read that question. <laughs> All right. Um, I definitely do not think it's as simple as it's being laid out. Mm-hmm. However, I also don't think I have nearly enough information to be able to speculate on what's going on. I do think Tayshren is involved. Mm-hmm. My take is that Tayshren knew that there was going to be a claw there, mm-hmm. knew that the claw was going to attempt to assassinate people during the battle and positioned himself up in the front so he could get as far away from that claw as possible. Mm. Not that he's orchestrating it or calling the shots, but that he's aware that it's going to happen or at least the potential for it to happen. Mm-hmm. So like, I, th- I don't think he's the one necessarily ordering all of these things, but I do think he knows enough to keep himself out of harm's reach. Mm-hmm. Calvin Wallace says, if you're a mage in this universe and your boss says, hey, get in a sorcery throwdown with the demigod in the floating rock castle, how quickly do you say no? <laughs> I did like that Kalo is like, so about that transfer. <laughs> yeah. Can I get a transfer to a different unit? <laughs> you know, I think the thing about being in an army like this is they have a pretty powerful hold on you, mm-hmm. which says... If you don't go take a chance in this battle mm-hmm. that you might die in, we will absolutely kill you. 
So I don't think I would. Right. <laughs> I think I'd take the chances with the demigod mm-hmm. versus the absolute definite death right. of saying no. So Jack Latien says, I'm loving the book so far, especially the dark and gritty feel. Am I crazy or is anybody else getting Warhammer uh, 40K vibes? I never read any of the Warhammer 40K books. I've heard that they are far better than the game itself. I always thought the Mm -hmm. Warhammer games looked super cool. Um, And I played a little bit of Warhammer when I was much, 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 much younger, but I don't remember a lot of it. But I've I've heard that the novels are actually way, way better than uh, anybody gives them credit for. Mm. Jonathan Thornhill says, am I the only one getting weird Chucky vibes from Hairlock? Yeah, we talked about this. All the, all those horror story notes, all those bills getting rung. (laughs) Theo Graham Brown says, (laughs) is Peron still alive or did we spend all that time worrying about how to say Ganos for nothing? Man. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the question that I'm sort of wrestling with, right? From a prediction standpoint, does Ganos live or does Ganos die? Mm-hmm. I'm like 75% that he lives. Mm-hmm. 25% that he dies. Okay. But I would say if Ganos Peron existed in three chapters, mm-hmm. just for us to subtly learn that his father is a badass, you know, and then is just killed mm-hmm. to also show us that this world is fucking cruel and cold. Mm-hmm. I would be down with that. You would be down with that? I would totally be down with that. Right. Like I would not yeah. be upset by that at all. Uh-huh. But, I, but I don't think that's what happens. Uh-huh. So Theo also says uh, there are voices that uh, Peron hears at the end. Only two speakers it says at the end. One is definitely sorry. Yet Amanus calls the other speaker. Continue. What the hell is going on? So this is, I think we we sort of walked it through. It it is Amanus and Cotillion sort yes. of talking through sorry. Mm-hmm. I think Amanus is really there. Or Cotillion is talking through sorry. Right. Cotillion has it, possessed sorry. So yeah, but it but it is all three of them. Right. But sorry is not the one who's taught. I mean. Sorry is the name that Cotillion has taken in Sorry's form. In Sorry's form, yeah. Theo says the first time we see members of the Claw, the Claw, the Claw, uh, they are swathed in black, hands hidden in sleeves, hoods shadowing their faces. When we first meet Cotillion, he's described as a man swathed in black, leaned over her, his face obscured beneath a hood shadow. Topper and Talk the Younger are both dressed differently. Maybe the Claw had a different uniform, or maybe Amanus and Cotillion are former Claw. Interesting speculation. I think Lacine was just trying t- to make an entrance. Yeah. Like, that's kind of the way I took it, and, yeah. not, and not to mean a whole lot more than that. Theo also says, uh, also in Chapter 1, the bit about Amanus and Cotillion on reread, Amanus sets the hounds off way before it seems... Uh, they are definitely taking sorry with them. Uh, it feels like it's not exactly the distraction. That's a good point. Well, I think he knew what they were coming there to do, you know? It could be. I think he's also... He's also just, just a little kind of bonkers. Insane, yeah. yeah. Which I do think the fact that we learned in in this section that the old emperor was insane, mm-hmm. and we know that Amanus is insane... 
I, I'm still mm. I'm still slightly on that Amanas and Cotillion mm-hmm. are the old emperor and Dasim Altor. I'm still mm-hmm. slightly in that vein. Mm. I mean, I don't have enough of a timeline yet to know if it matches right. up. So until I get something that tells me that's not the case, that's where that's where I'm leaning. Right. Um, he says, is Tayshren in league with Rake in Moonspawn? Because if not, he's powerful enough to have taken out four of his six allies while also doing enough damage to turn the tide of a battle all the other mages thought they would likely lose. I mean, there's no denying Tayshren is a bad donkey. Yeah, he, for sure. He yeah. holds his own against Animander Rake, whether or not he was, you know, directly the one who attacked the other mages or set something up. I mean, we know Nightchill was killed by a demon. So I think that that's not determined at this point. That's a good thought. It's not something that I had thought of. And again, and I, again we don't know. We don't know enough to understand what the motivations would be. Mm-hmm. But we also don't know enough to understand, you know, if the motivations, you know, would be contrary. Like, we, we, we just don't know at this point. He also says, how did Harlock assure Quick Ben and Calum? Is it Calum or Kalam? Yeah, uh, survived to help him. Was he cut down because he was uh, busy making sure Tayshren didn't wipe them out? He continues, was this Hairlock's back door or was it the plan all along? As in, is this meant to take to make Tayshren think he's dead and actually be a freaking mannequin? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, when Hairlock visited the bridge burners, he, you know, this is kind of a, a last... He, he wasn't intending to get disemboweled. Yeah, I don't think um, so. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of a, a last case, worst case scenario. Um, but I think he also probably knew how powerful Quick Ben was and that, if anything, probably at least Quick Ben was going to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he also wants to know, do you think Hairlock's secret Warren could actually be the Shadow Warren where Cotillion and Amanus dwell? I didn't get Hairlock's secret Warren thing at all. I totally missed that. Yeah, it's not a big thing made of it. Uh, just when when they're battling, it's Tattersale mentions that she doesn't know what his Warren is. Logan Van Steinberg says, which bridge burner has the most bad donkey name? Oh, geez. That's a hard one. I'm going picker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I i just it's not really i mean it's hard to argue with whiskey jack I mean, whiskey jack i mean it's hard come to on. argue from a na- purely name standpoint although i have to say at this point whiskey jack has been relatively one note it's early so i'm right. not i'm not holding it against him but he's been a fi- like he's probably been the most archetypical of mm-hmm. any of the characters yeah. we've met so far yeah which is why i like picker so much uh, Brian McClure says, this is the point I stop my first reading of Gardens of the Moon. Find the POV and the setting shift to be too abrupt, too jarring, and too confusing. Um, I would say um, reading it more slowly for sure and taking notes has helped. And again, I think um, it's not even just like the point of view switching. It's the um, the kind of the constant things just being thrown at you. Yeah. And you, if you're the kind of person who stops and tries to fit it all together before you move on, it, it gets frustrating. Yeah. So if you're just able to be like, okay, I don't know what that means, you know, 
but just kind of focus on what's happening with the characters, then you can enjoy it. And it does all fall together in a, a magnificent way. I can tell you that for sure. You just got to hold with it. You just kind of got to kind of got to barrel through all the Corral Galanes and Warrens and it, it, it comes together. I mean, I'm digging it so far. I, I think it helped that I had, I think a couple things helped. One, I'm going through it with, I think, the proper expectation. Mm-hmm. Two, we're doing it in the slow plotting podcast style. Mm-hmm. Three, I think also the fact that I read the Black Company stuff first, which has a similar approach. It's not as complicated, but it has the same sort of, we're throwing you in, we're not explaining everything. Right. You're just going to have to hang on, right? Um, sort of approach. So I, I, so for me, I'm I'm down with it. I'm sorry, I have to stop laughing before I can read the next one. <laughs> Brian McClure says, "What's your bridge burner name?" And then Theo Graham Brown and Eric Allgaier go back and forth, giving different suggestions as to what our bridge burner names <laughs> could be. <laughs> so, what is your bridge burner name? Uh, apparently, it's Loud Chad. <laughs> 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 I'm kind of down with that, actually. That's actually that's pretty. That's pretty of accurate. Good. It's kind of good. <laughs> I think my bridge. I Stephen right. Erickson needs to give me one. I'm I, just saying. My bridge burner name is Shatter Sneeze. Shatter Sneeze. You do have the loudest sneezes on the planet. And, and I am very serious when I say that I think you could win a contest. There is there's no hyperbole. I am convinced that no one in the world, in the world. In the world. Sneezes louder than I do. I am absolutely certain of that. I am expecting to see your brain come out of your nose one time. It's probably how I'm going to die. <laughs> Vincent Grohovac says, Steven Erickson interacts with fans pretty often. Have you ever considered interviewing an author on the podcast if the opportunity arose? I don't know, man. I just, I don't know if I'd be able to be cool enough I don't to need, actually talk to Steven Erickson. I don't need the author harsh in my good times. No, I would love to. Um, it hasn't really been something that we've put too much serious thought into. I'm honestly breaking out of the hives just thinking about it <laughs> right now. I don't think Liz could keep her cool. Yeah. We would have to get a, a guest on the podcast. <laughs> I'd have to invite Daryl on or something. <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a firm maybe. How about that? <laughs> Katie Butler says, I've had a bit of a hard time understanding a lot of stuff in the book, so maybe this is just because of it. But was there a particular reason why they decided to attack Moonspawn at that time? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of question about it. Mm -hmm. Even the characters are like, "Why now? Why now?" But to me, the rationale of mm -hmm. the other two enemy armies are away, but going to return. Mm -hmm. If we don't do it now, they will hit us in the flank. To me, seems totally legitimate. I don't right. know if it is totally legitimate. Yeah. But it seems legitimate to me. Eric Allgaier says, Chad, 
say you only have days to live, oh, and you're you're putting your affairs in order, which of the following would you prefer Liz to do? A, retire the Duke and Duchess podcast. B, find a sugar daddy who's a strong parental presence, loves podcasting, and coincidentally is a big fan of Branderson and Yellow Mustard. Hmm. Or C, study the dark arts and resurrect you as a cryptic marionette that she keeps in the basement to read books and record new episodes every two weeks. I mean... Uh. So listen, uh, option one, uh, the Duke and Duchess podcast is bigger than just me, so not not realistic. Uh, as for B, Liz doesn't need a sugar daddy. I already have diabetes. <laughs> that's not true, by the way. It does not have diabetes. <laughs> that's not, I just think that's funny. Uh, so C, clearly, if the option is wicked cryptic marionette, and all I have to do is record podcast fucking down for I mean sign me up I thought I was gonna put you in a candle but okay this sounds way better <laughs> Dab Babalina says do you ever get frustrated with reading some version of she slash he gave no reply uh, not yet I honestly but now had, that you've pointed it out it might start to bug me yeah I hadn't even picked up on it actually so so I get I guess not Susan King says, about the only thing I knew was going to happen was Hairlock being in the package that was given to sale. Did you see that coming? So kind of, because I did think that it was like a Horcrux or a Soul Jar or something. I did not think it was going to be a fucking marionette. Right. <laughs> but I did think I did think that somehow Hairlock was going to survive that. Mm-hmm. I mean, they kind of set they didn't necessarily set up the puppet part but they set up the idea that he would survive somehow Mm -hmm. the other part that i kind of saw coming was and i can't say that i called it per se but when peron walks into that alleyway Mm -hmm. the the phrase the phrasing says and i'll I'll look it up real quick Mm -hmm. the phrase says he strode into the alley leading to the barracks side entrance, the way lay in shadow. And that was when I was like, oh shit, he's going to get ambushed. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, I didn't think sorry would dispatch him in less than a second. He put up no goddamn resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, so I can't really say that I saw that coming per se, but I definitely... I definitely had a hint that that was something bad was going to go down in that alley. Mm-hmm. So Keenan Hope um, put his predictions out there for us to dissect. Basically, it looks like he's predicting that the Empress and Tayshran are are bad, but that there's more to the story than what is being proposed. That they're not guilty of everything that they're being accused of, and he's also predicting that Opon is. Um, directly going to oppose Shadow Thrones and the Shadow Warren, and that Opon is going to be the thing that prevents Paran from dying in the next chapter. So. I, I mean, that, honestly, all of that makes sense to me. Yeah. I also agree that, like, I'm not entirely convinced that Lacine is the big bad. Right. I'm not entirely convinced that Tatrin's the big bad. Mm-hmm. Also, by the way, if... If the stuff with Tayshren was exactly what it seems on the surface, wouldn't shock me at all. Uh-huh. 
but but I'm down with that. Uh, and the idea that Opon clearly wants to oppose what's going on, and people are not happy about, uh, you know, Tayshren's not happy about the, the you know Cotillion being involved. But there are all these sort of other mythical actors. The idea that one of them would intercede and save him mm-hmm. simply to be a fly in the ointment right. doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility. Right. It seems to make sense. Uh, and we did get some some scant evidence that it seems like there might be something supernatural keeping him alive. Right. So I'm I'm down. Yeah. That makes sense. So First, we have to announce our Pimp of the Week. Pimp of the Week. Pimp of the Week slash month, because it depends. Just depends. And our Pimp of the Week slash month for this episode is Patrick Sponigal. Hey, Pat. Thank you. Reach out to us, Pat. We'll get you a cool shirt. send you a mug or something. Something. All right. You ready for predictions? Yes. All right. So prediction the first is the claw from the Empress is the one that killed Kolo and Hairlock. Mm-hmm. Not Tayshrin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, prediction two, Tayshrin stood under Moonspawn because it put him furthest away from the assassin on the plane. So mm-hmm. I don't know if Tayshrin is or isn't involved, mm-hmm. but I do think he knew it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whiskey Jack... And the bridge burners are going to turn to Cotillion in an attempt to kill Tayshren. Hmm. And Piran is still alive. Okay. Those are my predictions. I like it. So if you're looking for ways to interact with the Duke and Duchess, you can find us online on Twitter at the DND Podcast. D is in Dave, N is in Nancy, D is in Dave Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess or on our Facebook group page at Facebook slash groups slash the DND group. Look for us on all the other social medias by looking for the Duke and Duchess podcast. That is on the Reddits, the Goodreads, Instagram. We got all those cool things. We're not on the TikToks yet because we're not here to let China spy on us. (laughs) All right. Do you have anything else? Nope. All right, good night, everybody. Good night.